This is episode 184 of Logomora for April 2nd, 2016. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Alohomora, MuggleNet.com's global reread of the Harry Potter series. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Kat Miller. And I'm Allison Sigurd. And our guest this week is Christina. Welcome, Christina. Hey, guys. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, my name is Christina. Uh, I've been following the show since the beginning, um, so I'm finally excited to be here. Uh, I got into Harry Potter uh, because of my grandparents. Um, they got me a book for Christmas, um, unknowing that it was actually the second book in the series. Um, <laughs> and I Whoops. tried to start reading it, and I just could not get into it. Um, it's really hard to get into the second book of the series. Um, but <laughs> thankfully, my mother, she realized this, and um, about six months later, she's like, let's try it again. I've got the audiobooks. So that was how I got started, was with the audiobooks, which are absolutely amazing, of course. Um, nice. and that is actually how my family kind of did the whole, um, new book thing was, you know, when we went to go get new books at midnight, um, we unfortunately, or at least according to me, unfortunately had to get the, um, audio book, which meant that everybody in the family had to be in the same room at the same time so we could listen to it <laughs> together. Oh no. <laughs> Which that sounds really nice actually. I mean it yeah, does, but it really also sounds nice terrible. <laughs> right. You know, there was I'll admit there were a, a couple times where I jumped ahead and took the tapes and listened to them in my room and then reset everything back to where it was um because I just had to know what was going on, right? <laughs> oh, that's right. You would have had to reset cuz you were using cassette tapes. Oh yeah. <laughs> um wow. I was, uh, but anyways, you know, I was at that perfect age. I was 17 when the seventh book came out. So I was just, you know, perfect timing that way. Housewise, I, I'll say I'm a raven puff. Um, though if somebody yes. actually asks me, I'll tell them I am a Hufflepuff. Um, because that was what I was originally sorted into. Um, but, you know, I got through all the Pottermore content and then it was a long time. Um, and I forgot my password and everything, so I signed up for a new account. <laughs> and before I know it, I'm sorted into Ravenclaw, and I'm having an identity crisis. Um, I think the first one. I think the first one counts. I, I so, feel like Pottermore knows that you forgot your password and everything, so it's throwing you for a loop. So go Hufflepuff. So, that's always so. Yeah. that's always so funny to me because I figure that people can take it multiple times, and I'm like, just go for two out of three and see what breaks the tie. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Unless I'm, I'm afraid because what if, what if they tell me I'm Ravenclaw and I've been thinking all this time I'm a Hufflepuff. So I have heard people who are scared of that <laughs> for sure. Yeah, no, that's funny too because I yeah uh, I held on to my login like nobody's business. I printed out that certificate when the old Pottermore ended and I was like I, I did, will have this forever. I did too. I know what I am. <laughs> my well, my username was to me perfection. It had Firebolt, and then it was Key. You know, like the first book and Gringotts and all mm-hmm. that. Oh, and then nice. the number seven. Like, what? Ooh. It doesn't get any more, like, Firebolt Key 7. I don't oh, know. That's man. a perfect username, in my opinion. Actually, Accio Firebolt 24 would have been my perfect username, but I'm happy with mine. So it's okay. <laughs> I got Wolfsbane Echo 79, and I was so excited because it had wolf in it. Nice. <laughs> so. I do remember that, actually. I got, yeah, Seeker spell. <laughs> and I was like, Seeker, I'm good with this. Nice. Like, <laughs> 
I have one very important question for you, Christina. Mm-hmm. Are you a Snape fan? Um, I don't think so. I don't think I would uh, classify myself as a Snape fan. Um, uh oh. <laughs> oh dear, we are in trouble. Well, listeners, <laughs> this is going to be a rough episode for you then. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, I would say I'm not necessarily, like, you know, I, I wouldn't say Snape is a good person or a bad person. You know, I don't know. He's so complicated. And I'm not sure how, I, I still have troubles trying to decide how I feel about him. You know, um, he did some really horrible <laughs> things, but he did, you know, he also helped out a lot. So, yeah. What an excellent way into segueing so <laughs> as to remind the listeners that in this episode, we will be examining Snape at length. This is basically the episode you've been waiting for all these, all these episodes. This, we will be covering chapter 33 of Deathly Hallows. The Prince's Tale today. So make sure and read the chapter as if you haven't reread it a million <laughs> times already in preparation before you listen to our discussion today, listeners. And before we get into that discussion, even though you guys wanted to jump the gun this week on the comments, <laughs> everyone wanted to talk about Snape. So here's what happened. I kind of said we're going to leave Snape for this week. So... Gather all of those thoughts and discussions you guys were having and comment on this week <laughs> because there's I have I have a feeling some of you will be very upset with our views. <laughs> but here we go. So into our comments for this week, our first one comes from Skagai, who says, I was really hoping there would be discussion about the Shrieking Shack. Why, oh why, are we back here in this moment? Voldemort chose a dilapidated log cabin in the middle of nowhere as Central Command. Really? This is such an odd choice. And this was followed up by a comment by... Uh, oh my goodness. Oh, can't you title? Thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to let Michael say that. <laughs> who, who followed up and said, Why did Joe choose the Shrieking Shack? To me, I think it is a delicious and heartbreaking irony that Snape should die in that building. The same building that he almost died in 20 years ago, lured there to see a werewolf in the flesh. The same building he's already had to reconfront his demons at the end of Prisoner. The same building where Remus went through his violent monthly transformations as a child. Narratively, I think this is a very appropriate setting for the very violent and bloody death that Snape experiences. So I know I said no Snape, but this idea of the <laughs> Shrieking Shack, um, especially from a narrative point of view, what do we think? I always thought the Shack was an interesting choice because Voldemort has no attachment to it whatsoever. Um, like it means nothing to him. And it was, you know, it's, I'm, I'm never really clear on, I don't think the shack was, that's the hard part because the, I don't know if the books clarify this definitively. The shack wasn't built for Lupin, right? But it, Correct. it, it was just repurposed for Lupin. Correct. Yes. Okay. So we have, so, so really, so the shack might've been there when Voldemort was at school, but what? Other than knowing that it's maybe that's just it is that he went to Hogsmeade back when he was a kid and he knew that it was abandoned. Um, and it was just like for if we're looking at why Voldemort picked it, um, that's the only reason I could imagine. Because, again, he has no personal, as far as I'm aware, attachment to the shack. It is it does really seem to be more of a poetic thing for Snape's stuff. I've always just kind of thought of it as a convenience location i mean you didn't there was nobody living there already it was 
you know, there was a secret tunnel to um, the Hogwarts grounds if you want to get there that way. Um, and it, it just seemed like it was, you know, a nice location and easy to um, get to, but out of the way. So what was happening at Hogwarts, he could, um, Voldemort could stay out of the way of that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was, I was just going to say that I think it's partly convenience. He can be on Hogwarts ground, which he knows is where he has to be because he knows that's where Harry is, but without actually stepping foot in the castle because I think that he's very aware of the fact that, sure, he'll probably go in there and plummel everybody, but as he said, he doesn't really want to spill any magical blood, so I think he's trying to stay out of the fray as long as possible. And also, I think all the issues that he's having with his wand, I'm, I know that he knows he's unbeatable, but he's also a pretty insecure guy. And, you know, if you get two, three, well, a thousand people <laughs> coming at him at once, who knows what could possibly happen. So I think it's a little bit of self-preservation as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me, too, that it's until at least he knows that the Elder Wand will work for him perfectly, he's not going to take that chance. He's not much of a risk taker, I don't think, in some no. ways. I also always wondered why he didn't just go into the Room of Requirement. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he knows it's there. He thinks nobody else knows it's there. Well, but he doesn't know there's an outside entrance to the room, right? He thinks he has to get through the castle. Right. He'd have to walk through the through the school at that point and get there. I suppose, but, you know, I'm pretty sure, like Dumbledore, he can make himself invisible. Oh, yeah, well, that's a good Plus, point. he is concerned, he knows at this point that Harry's hunting down Horcruxes, so he's probably concerned that Harry would see him go in there. Um, he probably Possibly. doesn't want to go near the room, if because that's giving away the hiding spot, potentially. Um, obviously, because in this case, unlike the movies, he doesn't know that Harry's already <laughs> destroyed it by right. this point, so... But, um... You know, the other thing I was thinking, too, because this is such a good question because of what happened in the movies, because the movies chose to relocate this scene to the boathouse yeah, of Hogwarts. Right. And uh, Heyman um, and Yates just kind of said that the they mostly made that choice because they thought it was really aesthetically pleasing. Like, it also had no, like, real heft or weight behind it because we never see the boathouse in the <laughs> movies. Um, but... They were. They said that it was just. They really liked the kind because of, they had already set up the boathouse and it, you see it in previous films, but you don't actually get to be in it. Um, but they liked that setup, kind of being really small and intimate, and they liked the glass windows. I was gonna say um, it's all about the glass windows, really. Yeah, yeah because I otherwise think that's what... they 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 couldn't do the shrieking shack because Harry would have had to be in a tunnel. He's wearing the invisibility cloak, so basically you'd be looking at nothing. They had to change it for the movie and yeah. the convenience of those glass windows so that they could just see Snape die from the outside. It's brilliant. <laughs> well, and really, why would they do the Shrieking Shack in the movies when we've removed the Marauder's story? Yeah, that's true. And that shack has almost no... The shack is a really great set piece in the movie. It's one of my favorite set pieces from Prisoner. Um, it was so creatively done. But at the same time, it doesn't have any narrative weight at, at all. all. Yeah. So. I do think, though, it's a, it's an interesting thing to bring up that uh, Snape almost died there before. Mm-hmm. And that this is really... He has that well, connection. Well, okay, he could have died there. Not almost. Could have. I mean, he didn't even make it past a Whomping Willow. Yeah. So... Because well, yeah, but certainly, like, the... 
the idea that, and we'll get much, I'm sure much more into this in our discussion this week, but the idea that Snape just can never be, Snape can never get out of the shadow of his past and the yeah. things mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, just ho- kind of hovered over him like a cloud and the Marauders were that in a big way. For sure. Definitely. Our next comment comes from Jay Dozier, who says, On the topic of Voldemort feeling emotion, Rowling has made very clear that Voldemort being born under a love potion does not affect his ability to feel love or by birth make him a sociopath. In her Year in the Life documentary, Rowling says, To me, human includes the capacity to love, and Voldemort deliberately dehumanized himself. Therefore, Voldemort's apparent inability to love was all a very conscious choice on his part. And Vermeer, uh, this comment kind of goes on to discuss um, another interview where she talks about how his conception under a love spell is more symbolic. And then it says, I think this is a really important distinction because it follows one of the greatest themes throughout the Harry Potter series. It is not our circumstances, but our choices that make us who we are, who we are. If Voldemort had automatically been born with a defect, we wouldn't be able to adequately compare him and Harry. However, since they are both born and somewhat raised in equal circumstances, their choices alone define their character. Without this fact, the story goes against one of its basic and most powerful arguments. A love potion wasn't responsible for Voldemort's evil nature. He alone was. I'm glad Rowling clarified that outside of the I'm in, outside of the narrative because I think that's a point that's really nicely left up to interpretation in the books. And I I, I prefer her explanation because because it does open that up. That it continues that the story's theme about choices because we had some pretty extensive conversations about this in Half Blood Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, if Voldemort was just born with an inability to to love because of the circumstances, but I would much prefer to think that that's not the case because his choices are Voldemort's choices throughout life are so important and kind of he's meant to be like a you know the the, the we don't compare Harry and Voldemort just because they share a piece of soul. I think it's because Harry throughout his story has the the potential to be Voldemort and he chooses not to be. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really where you make those comparisons before we knew that Harry was a Horcrux. I think that's really where we, you could draw that from. Mm-hmm. Our last comment today then comes from Ilvermorny alumna, who is previously Rose Lumos. <laughs> who says, one of my favorite little moments in this chapter is when Hermione attempts to save Lavender. We know that last year Hermione couldn't stand her because she was so obsessed with Ron. However, I love that Hermione is mature enough to realize that the petty high school feud is just that, a disagreement between teenage girls about a boy. This war is about life and death, and Hermione is not going to let that little issue get between her and Lavender's life. In spite of everything, I think Hermione still recognizes Lavender as a friend, or at least as a roommate and classmate, and knows that she really is a good person. To me, this little moment is Hermione putting off, putting any minor issues between them aside. I know that if I look back, there are a lot of people in high school that I didn't particularly like, but if I had to choose to save their life, I would. And the big thing that kind of hit me during this, uh, reading this comment, was there's a strong comparison here to Snape and James, and kind of going back to the idea of choices, and the choices you make. Um, and then I guess in this situation, you can also compare Ron and Lily. Right. Um, I agree with this comment and then also disagree with this comment, um, <laughs> mostly because I think that they weren't ever feuding. I think that Hermione was dealing with things inside of herself and that chose her. I mean, that led her to 
be jealous of Lavender. I don't think that she ever hated her or disliked her or was feuding with her in any way. I think Hermione in those moments was feuding with herself and coming to terms with the way that she felt about Ron. And that is where kind of that feeling of, you know, the high school feud came from. But I honestly don't think that was ever a thing. I never for once ever expected Hermione to not save anybody, um, feud or not aside. Right. And I mean, they've been living together in the same room for, you know, six years. And, um, you know, they've had those experiences that were behind the scenes that we probably never saw. And they're probably, you know, at least somewhat friendly. So, I mean, even though there might have been some, I don't know, dislike towards Lavender um, while she was with Ron, it was, I think, also in a way more of an issue with Ron not seeing Hermione that way, too. That's funny. You kind of forget that Lavender was Hermione's roommate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You kind of forget about that. I. That's a very good point. Well, very because point. as far as we see on the page, Hermione doesn't really have a per- much of a particular bond with the girls in her year because Parvati and Lavender kind of go off and do their own thing most of the time. Right. Um, right. Hermione but, is the Neville of the girls' dorm. Oh, because you've got, yeah. well, you have Harry and That's Ron, true. and then you have Dean and Seamus. So. Mm-hmm. And Dean and Seamus are represented by those two, like, unknown girls in that year. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Is, like, hinted at, but we never knew about. So yeah. there are there are potentially two other girls there. But, um, yeah, I, I, I would actually, like Christina said, I would actually agree that, and I agree with you, Kat, too, that it's, it's, I think it was some, I think it was a mix of those things. I think it was, interestingly, when I, when reflecting back on it, Hermione's feud really isn't with Lavender. Like you said, Kat, it's with herself. And as you said, Christina, I think it's, a, I think her anger is way more targeted at Ron um, mm-hmm. than it yeah. is at Lavender. She doesn't really show much. She's kind of, I think the only thing she doesn't much care for as far as Lavender goes is that she does, you know, is, is the fact that Ron, in that moment chose Lavender because Lavender isn't very, Lavender isn't very interesting to Hermione. Like Hermione, we, the, we, the interactions we have seen between the two of them, Hermione kind of disdains Lavender's kind of airheadedness. Um, Her fluffy pink personality, <laughs> yeah, really, is what yeah. it comes down to. Yeah. Like that, the, the, I, I think the popular scene to cite is, is Prisoner with Lavender's dead bunny. <laughs> where Hermione's just yeah. like, no, that's not why your bunny died. And, like, she just cannot understand how the whole school thinks that Trelawney made this profound prediction about her bunny. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think that's, like, she she doesn't really... I think she's disappointed in Ron for picking somebody who's not perhaps as intellectually challenging as she herself is. Which is great, because it speaks to... Hermione thinking that Ron deserves that, too. So, yeah. Which is cute. Well, and, and you know, too, Allison, you were comparing this situation to other characters. I think it's easy, too, to... And we talked about this last week, about uh, the trio saving Malfoy and, and Goyle. Um, and kind of like, why would they do that? And it's because they have... they they And some people said in the comments, it's their saving people thing. <laughs> like, but, but also that the just that these three are inherently good people. Like, it, and in times like war, 
in extreme situations. They don't really care about the petty stuff. Like, Harry can even put aside his petty issues with Malfoy to save his life. Ron can't because he punches that boy in the face. Well, well, he still still helps save his life. But yeah, no, they totally didn't deserve to be punched. I mean, you can still save somebody's life and want to punch him in the face. No, oh, I know. (laughs) Yeah, so am I the only one who's seeing this comparison? I don't know. I just, I'm seeing Hermione almost being the potential to be like Snape is with Lily, where they're friends and, I mean... It's obvious she likes him from, like, book two. And um, just kind of this this idea of... Anyway, I guess we can get there later. But mm-hmm. I may be the only one who's seeing this. But that's fine. <laughs> You'll have to explain it a bit more, I think. Okay. Once there's context. Yeah. I'll do that later then. Anyway, thank you so much for all of your comments this week, um, everyone. There were a lot of really good conversations going on. So head on over to alohamora.mugglethat.com to go check them all out. Yeah, I was looking through them last night, and I, like as I was looking, there were people I saw. Yeah. Like the, it was, Discus was informing me that people were literally writing comments as I was looking at them. So that, yeah, last week's discussion was pretty good. So I guess we'll move on to the podcast question of the week responses, of course, from last week as well. As a reminder of the question, it is. In their final encounter, Snape continually insists to Voldemort to let him go and find Harry. We will discover in the next chapter, the one we're discussing this week, the breadth of Snape's knowledge of what Harry has to do, which clarifies that the transfer of the Elder Wand's power is not something he is aware of. With that in mind, and knowing what information... Snape bequeaths to Harry via his memories. What was his plan? Was his intention to seek Harry out or relay the information another way? Does Snape know that, regardless of his course of action, he would be as much a pig for slaughter as Harry? <sighs> okay, guys. We're, we're going to be, a, this is going to be a little bit of a Snapey conversation. Obviously. <laughs> Snapey. <laughs> um, it's a verb now, right? Yeah. So, um, we got a lot of comments, as you could imagine, and there's a couple here. Okay, I'm just going to read them. The first one here comes from Slytherin Bookworm. It says, Snape was a very smart wizard, and I think he knows that his fate is not so different from Harry's. As a double spy, his life is always in jeopardy. Voldemort could learn the truth at any time. Someone might decide to take out revenge on him for Dumbledore's death, or he could just get hit by a stray curse. It is war, after all. I don't think he is quite ready for this to be his moment, though. Obviously, he still needed to find Harry. But I think he had perhaps already come to terms with the fact that he would most likely not make it through the end of the war. He made a promise to protect Lily's son, and he did as far as he could. But I think in Snape's mind, because ultimately he could not save her son from death, his only recourse to find redemption to relieve his own guilt over her death was to give his own life in the fight against Voldemort. This kind of reminds me of how the Vikings preferred to die in battle so that they could gain entry into Valhalla. It was the only way to die with honor, and so Snape feels that he must die in the fight against Voldemort to redeem his soul. Whew. Heavy one. I know. It's heavy. So I'm going to lob that one to you guys. (laughs) Hmm. I mean, that's the only way I can really reconcile as I read through it why Snape is ready to die. He kind of strikes me as a man who at that point in his life, really has nothing to live for other than his mission to protect Harry for Lily, strictly for Lily, as he 
as we will see in the next chapter. I'm not quite sure about him feeling like the only way for him to die that he'd feel redemption for is in fighting Voldemort. I I think Michael's right. He just doesn't care anymore, and I don't think he's cared for a long time. And I think he could have died in any way at any point during that, and it wouldn't have mattered. Ooh. Yeah, I agree with the part of the comment that said that he's not read. Like, he doesn't know if this... I wouldn't... I would agree that he, he didn't necessarily think that, like... There's no ideal moment, I suppose, <laughs> to die. Harry gets one because he's Harry, but... I don't think Snape was see like maybe saw this as the moment, especially because he still needed to relay that information to Harry. Yeah. It also, it's such a strange interaction between Voldemort and Snape compared to the other ones we've seen where Voldemort is kind of listening to Snape, um, treating him as more of an, I wouldn't say a complete equal, but more of an equal than he does other death eaters. And at this mm. moment, he's being very, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not patronizing, um, but something along those lines, um, where he's definitely making the distinction in Voldemort's mind that Voldemort is higher on the hierarchy than Snape is, and that Snape is below him. And that's a very strange interaction, I think, for Snape at this point. And I think that might throw him off guard a little bit. Well, I think maybe the next comment will help inform our discussion a little bit here. It's from Granger Danger. Awesome this username. could be... <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, the comment says, I don't think Snape was too worried about his fate. He was ready to finish the job he started. I think he knew that there was a strong chance that he wouldn't make it to the morning after the battle. However, I think that he was fearful when he knew Voldemort wasn't falling for his mask anymore. He had been around Voldemort long enough to know when Voldemort had had let time run out for someone. So, he was crafting a plan while Voldemort was getting ready to kill him, and using the idea of going to find Harry as a distraction for more time to think things through, or maybe get out of the situation. I believe it worked out for the best. The memories gave him the edge needed for Harry to ultimately believe him. And the commenter goes on, just leaves a little note that says, not meaning I want his Snape to die, but I think mm -hmm. the memories were his best option. Snape may have even been planning to give Harry the memories in person. I think the memories were the only way for Harry to truly believe him. Harry knew that Dumbledore trusted Snape, but at this point, after Snape killing Dumbledore, I don't know if that would have been enough for Harry to believe him. Snape is a skilled wizard and would have known the power of the Pensieve. He also knew that he and Harry would never see eye to eye, and his word alone probably wouldn't be good enough. I think the memories were his plan all along, and Dumbledore may have had something to do with that idea. I like that comment because that's yeah. what I've been wo wondering. That whole this like that's always that was kind of where this question came from for me because you know we we had talked about that. Like to me, it was like Snape wasn't gonna if Voldemort had let him go, he wasn't just gonna go waltzing around Hogwarts and then like go up to Harry and be like, "Hello, I was in <laughs> love with your mother." Like. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I'm a good person. <laughs> now you have you be a good little boy and go to the forest and get yourself killed. Like, like do 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 not stop. Do not pass go. Do not do not collect two hundred dollars. So wait before <laughs> like, okay. Then I feel like before we continue discussing this, then I really want to read the, our last comment because I think that it 
fits into everything we're talking about right now. And it's from Jay Dozier. Again, it says, I wonder if Snape would send the Doe Patronus again to find Harry and bring him to a secluded place, since Harry already trusts the Patronus, where the Pensieve would be waiting, most likely in Dumbledore's office or an empty classroom. Perhaps the Doe would even speak like Dumbledore's had, telling Harry to follow for important information in his defeat of Voldemort. Since we all know he would be reckless and curious enough to follow, especially since he knows the Doe has helped once already. There, Harry would see the memories, and then Snape could perhaps be standing there when Harry arises from the basin to explain things further, having already gained his trust. This seems more likely to me than anything else, because it would get Harry to hear Snape out first via the memories, before immediately distrusting him. If this plan was to succeed, however, he would need to get away from Voldemort to cast a Patronus and open-slash-replace the Pensieve into the desired location. I thought that was brilliant. That is brilliant. So, Besides the same. creepy picture in my head now of Harry popping up from the Pensieve and Snape just being standing there in the corner <laughs> creepily. But, because um, that's creepy. But, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, I, you know, at this point in time, I agree, you know, that Harry would not, still, I don't think, would take too kindly to seeing Snape in person and just him handing over the memories in a normal situation. So I think this Doe Patronus idea is like a great idea. Um, yeah, to get Harry the memories and that he needs, um, and that information that he needs, but not do it, or, but, you know, to do it in a way that he can see everything without Snape actually having to disclose that information to him personally. Yeah, that seems, this seems actually like it could have potentially been what Snape's plan was, because when, when Harry goes to the headmaster's office in this next chapter, the pensive is waiting on the desk. Um, yeah. So, and it would seem based on what Snape does, he, he did like by, by, I mean, he didn't, what's interesting is that while the pensive was on the desk, Snape didn't already have his memories prepped to go in like in something for Harry to take with him. Um, like he didn't have them in a flask already. Harry had to take them from him. Um, and it was just kind of lucky happenstance that Harry happened to be in that same area. I don't know if Snape would have put them like I I hesitate to think what would have happened if Harry hadn't shown up by uh, at the point when Snape died cuz I I don't know those memories I guess would be lost to time. So, it all worked out fortunately. I mean except for Snape obviously <laughs> he did but <laughs> but yeah no i think that's a really good idea because the dough still ne hadn't necessarily been answered by that point anyway and harry definitely would have followed it and trusted oh, yeah. it wholeheartedly mm -hmm. oh yeah without hesitation mm -hmm. oh yeah for sure i was just wondering i think snape you know there was actually a lot of comments this week about whether snape pre-picked those specific memories I think he did, based on what we're going to see in the next chapter and how the, how it's constructed. Yeah, we actually have a whole we actually have a whole comment about that that we're going to talk about on the app. So if you guys have the app, definitely be sure to check that out this week. But for now, that is the end of our podcast question of the week responses from last week. Definitely head over to alohamora.mugglenet.com and keep the Snapey conversation going. I feel like this is just the tip of a very giant titanic sized iceberg <laughs> <laughs> pun intended <laughs> and before we jump into this snapey discussion that's going to go on for quite a while we'd like to remind <laughs> you that this episode is sponsored by shauna reimer on patreon 
And you too can sponsor an episode for us. Thank you so much, Shauna. You are amazing. Um, Woo, Shauna. Thank yay! you. And if you too would like to sponsor us, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month. Um, our post house plans were released a little while ago. So if you want to get the scoop on that, head on over and become a Patreon sponsor. It's on our, you can click on the link on our main page at alohamara.mugla.com. And thank you again so much, Shauna. We appreciate it. Claps. Yay! All right, listeners. It's the moment you've been waiting for. This is it. Chapter 33 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Expecto Patronum. Chapter 33. After all this time. The Prince's Tale. Always. As Severus Snape lies dead before them, the trio hear Voldemort proclaim that Harry has one hour left to give himself up or battle will recommence with the Dark Lord joining the fray. Returning to Hogwarts, the trio find their comrades mourning the dead in the Great Hall, Lupin and Tonks now among the fallen. Feeling these deaths are on his hands, Harry retreats to the headmaster's office to find the pensive waiting for him. Not wasting a moment, Harry retreats into Snape's memories, revealing some of the most crucial information in the Harry Potter series. That Snape and Lily shared a friendship, a friendship that destroyed Lily's sisterly bond with Petunia. That Harry is bound to Voldemort as a horcrux and must die by his hand, that Snape was indeed Dumbledore's trusted spy, and that Dumbledore placed his trust within him because Snape loved Lily always. So before we get into that, we do have a few notes on a few pre-Snape notes, um, because for just a little bit in this chapter, we we are not in Snape's head. Uh, we do return to Hogwarts, and actually, there's a. There was a great comment um, from one of our listeners that ties into one of the lines um, as the trio returns to Hogwarts and they see they see bodies littered everywhere. They see evidence that Grop had quite a scuffle with another giant and uh, they go inside to the main entrance and the narration says emeralds were still scattered all over the floor. And one of our uh, longtime commenters and listeners, that time Remus Wadi Wasud Voldemort, which would have been a great way for the series to end, <laughs> uh, left us a comment saying, uh, in, in relation to um, a lot of the discussion we've had about Rowling's post-book comment that, that the Slytherins came back, not just Slughorn, but that the Slytherins as a whole came back. Um, but uh, that time Remus Wadawasid Voldemort said, if we use supporting evidence elsewhere in the text, it all seems to point us towards the notion that there really aren't any Slytherins on the Hogwarts side of this. Even the Slytherin house points hourglass is broken, while the others are not. I can't help but see it as a metaphor for the relationship between Slytherin and the other three houses. Slytherin is just marked as bad all over the place. And Joe never takes the opportunity to give us the impression that any of the Slytherin students fought for Hogwarts. So, and I really, I, I, the reason I, I wanted to highlight this comment and this line, because this line did strike me in the read, and I, it, it has struck me before while reading this chapter. Um, it's almost like, uh, to me, the, the idea that the Slytherins did come back post the, you know, the, the, the confrontation and helped 
really does kind of take away from the 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 powerful imagery of this line of the emeralds and i was wondering how you guys felt about that perhaps a little bit of a retcon on rowling's part i i actually think i'm going to disagree with what it means mm. um mm-hmm. from this commenter i i think it's it can be seen more as saying the old way that we saw slytherin the old way slytherin acted maybe as a house is now broken that it's going to change that this old perception of them, maybe a perception that a lot of them lived up to is now shattered because they're back. They're going to help. Things are going to change. Um, that's my symbolic disagreement for it. My practical disagreement for it is emeralds would show up better on a stone floor. So they'd be more visually appealing um, to see, but I don't know. Rub- rubies would look pretty good though. Cause they kind of like, but blood. the line before that says there's blood. So she's already talked about the blood and the red on the floor. What are the what in the are, line before this? What are the Ravenclaws gems? Sapphires. Are, sapphires. Sapphires. Okay. And the Hufflepuff is diamonds. Diamonds. Yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting way to interpret the line because I, I mean, personally, I still don't see it that way just because I kind of see the, 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 the blood as representing kind of everybody else, everybody who's fought like. You know, the, mm. the, on on the side of Hogwarts. Um, obviously, there's probably other people's blood mingled in there from the baddies, but that's kind of how I've always seen that imagery. Yeah, I'm with you, Michael, on that one wholeheartedly. Yeah, and it's just it just seems like a, a it's a really to me it really is a powerful image, and and other than um, and a powerful a powerful piece of metaphor. And Allison, I think that's great. The idea that maybe it can be turned another another way i guess it's the hard part with that for me is that we don't really you know the the ways that we see slytherin turn aren't really as a whole house united in turning against voldemort so much as indiv- individuals who make choices yeah. from slytherin house to turn against voldemort this is um, I, i'm one of those people i love everything that joe puts out after the fact i i wholeheartedly subscribe to the notion that everything Joe says is canon as long as it doesn't contradict anything in the seven novels. Mm. And this for me is one of the biggest things that I have a really hard time with Joe's comment that all the Slytherins came back because I feel like she's just saying that to placate all the angry Slytherins. <laughs> Has she said all like, of you know them what? come back though? Well, I don't said, remember her I ever saying all of them. Like, I thought she said, like, good, there are them, some that came back. Yeah, a good chunk. Say, I, I couldn't picture Pansy coming back, so. <laughs> no, like, and there's definitely some that, I mean, that's just a thing. Like, there's kids of Death Eaters that we know of already. Like, they're not coming back. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. They're not coming back for that reason, but. I guess I just, I just need, and listen, I, I like to say that I'm 49% Slytherin, so. Slytherins out there, don't get mad at me. I just feel like you have to own up to what the Slytherins have been in the Harry Potter series. They've been terrible. They've been bad. And so they don't come back. Mm -hmm. That's it. They don't come back. That doesn't mean that all Slytherins suck. It doesn't mean (laughs) that they used to suck or that they're going to suck in the future. It means that the Slytherins that Harry knew at Hogwarts during his time sucked. That's it. Don't read it. That's a good point. (laughs) They don't come back. Well, and I like, too, that we kind of reason that the Slytherins who may have wanted to stay and defend the the castle may have had so many 
reasons for not doing so that made sense. The idea that their families were already entwined with Voldemort's cause, that they knew people who knew people, and that the fear was just too much. And that's not unreasonable. No, for Um, sure. And I I mean, for all we know, maybe there's a Ravenclaw person whose dad's a Death Eater. We don't know. Yeah, Yeah, no. So maybe they left too. I mean, we have no idea. Yeah, for sure. So... And as we saw, there were some other members of houses who didn't do very noble things during the Battle of Hogwarts. <laughs> Still looking at you, Zachary Smith. Bull, bull, the I don't care. Stain of Hufflepuff House. I know Noah's writing his fan fiction about him, but no. <laughs> so, of course, we come to the moment when we we pass the emeralds and blood littering the floor, and we we enter the Great Hall, and there there are bodies. And we already see, we sadly see, we see the Weasleys mourning over Fred. And just down the way from them, the the thing that, the thing that made me throw a Harry Potter book across the room, the only time I have ever thrown a Harry Potter book, Remus and Tonks have passed away in battle. Um, This is the second time I almost didn't finish this book. Two pages off after I almost didn't finish it the first time. (laughs) (laughs) I put it back down and I was like, she's going to kill everybody. I can't do it. Like, (laughs) nope. And I'm with you, Michael. I kind of like slid it across the room and I was just like, nope. I had, I, and my mistake too was that I thought he would, I read this line before I got to this chapter because I checked, I wanted to check and see if Lupin made it. And I actually just, the universe made me flip to this page. I found it, and I, and I, before I'd even read the chapter, and I was so upset. I threw it across the room and didn't read it for the rest of the night. Um, and of course, you know, we will we will f- find out later that you know Teddy is well cared for and well raised, and um, and that Remus and Tonks um, in the in the literacy sense died for Rowling because she wanted to have a pair uh, some parents die. And she chose continuity. Continuity, yeah. Yes. Circle theory. Not Circle. All of the above. I, uh, I was saddened by this death, by these deaths, but I wasn't surprised. I, you know, um, you know, Tonks was an auror, and Remus was going to put everything he could into this fight. So I really wasn't all that surprised it happened. I was upset, but you know, I kind of expected it actually. You know, it's funny. I think the reason I was surprised. And Pottermore kind of clarified why I shouldn't have been. And maybe it is because Lupin has been off screen for so long. So we really didn't get a proper sense of what he had been like through the years since Prisoner. Like, you, you, we saw him every once in a while. Um, but I always saw Lupin as, ex- like, an exceptionally powerful wizard. And I kind of thought that would get him through the battle. Um, because he does teach Harry very powerful magic, and he's... He's he's shown to be very talented at magic, and so I thought that might help him. But apparently, as Pottermore said, he hadn't been fighting for a while. His senses were dulled, and that's what kind of took him out. He died against uh, Dolohov, who was, I think, later taken out by Flitwick. Um, and Tonks, sadly, was killed by Bellatrix. So Bellatrix got what she wanted, as Ugh. far as that went. Um, so that's sad. But uh, it's it's funny that you bring up Flitwick because I w- I just had a giggle to myself. He has such an advantage that he's so tiny <laughs> that most spells probably go right over his head. <laughs> oh my gosh! 
Well, I would hope that people, yeah, I suppose if you're weaving through battle, then. Well, that's what I mean. Like, he's not going to get hit most likely by an by, ant, Yeah, so. by stray curses. Yeah, that's true. So. Oh, I just had a giggle to myself. Sorry. But I guess. It's totally inappropriate. I, yeah, Remus Tonk, sad. Well, right. <laughs> well, and I guess the reason it always, it bothered me too for a long time is that they're, they're kind of just written off with one line. Like, it's like, and they, yeah. and they were dead too. So that was a bit of a shock for me. Um, I think the way they did it in the movie then is really nice because, I mean, you have the deleted scene, of course, but even when mm. Harry sees them, he sees them and their hands are like almost touching. And no, that Harry's just... not there. That's just a oh. cutaway moment. Wait, what? Harry's not there. Harry's not there. No, when he sees them dead? Oh, when movie? he sees them dead. I thought you were talking about that terrible scene when they extend their arms towards each other. No. <laughs> That one's the deleted scene, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And my reminder not... Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. the the reaching the hand no, the reaching the hand is in the movie. It's when they actually oh. hug and talk to each other that's deleted. Yes. That's oh. correct. Why did I get the confused? Anyway. Yeah, because they have the like the reaching of the hands is kinda like they tried to do like a motif of that. They they from yeah. the, so the, of people just not being able to connect with each other and during the battle, so but uh, Harry, in in his utter shock and bewilderment of all of these deaths, cannot bring himself to mourn with everybody and runs off upstairs to the headmaster's office. Interestingly, um, I thought I was thinking about this. Harry just says the first thing that comes to his mind for a password, it's Dumbledore. So ostensibly Snape set this password, correct? Yeah, I would assume so. Seemingly. Not yeah. Nice. I thought that was I thought that was interesting because we're gonna t- you know I, I want to talk later farther down about Snape and Dumbledore's relationship and I was kind of wondering even just setting the password how that speaks to it I suppose when you think about it that's never a pa- that's not a password that I you imagine anybody would guess to get into Snape's office so I suppose and yeah. also I mean the uh, the gargoyle right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, codes, yeah. I have a feeling that Snape would probably just be like, "Whatever Harry shouts, let him up here." <laughs> like, yeah. I'm pretty sure that I mean the gargoyle can talk back to Harry. Yeah, so it's sentient in some form of sentience. So just instructed you know, it to take. Whatever. I take it that the Caros never came up to Snape's office then, uh, because that would be rather interesting for them to have to say Dumbledore in order to get up to see Snape in the headmaster's office. Hmm. Well, this also could have been a very recent development because if you remember what was happening earlier in the day, um, I feel like Snape probably knew something was coming and was setting everything up. The fact that the Pensieve was sitting out, that the password is Dumbledore if it's actually really a password. I feel like he was preparing because he knows what Voldemort is doing so he could have been alerted that Voldemort was going to the castle or that Harry had been seen at the castle I mean he talks to McGonagall about all of that so I feel like there was some sort of preparation in that and uh, I now actually firmly believe that he was going to use the whole Patronus thing to get the word out to Harry I feel like that is so eloquent beautiful such an amazing idea yeah, I, I think, I wonder, too, if um, he might have changed it almost as a a reminder to himself of what oh, he's possibly. supposed to be doing and kind of what the end game is to kind of keep himself on track. That's a really great way to put it. I wasn't really sure what the motivation behind it was. I was kind of just thinking it was extra security because nobody would ever guess that. 
But, <laughs> um, but yeah, well, and speaking of Dumbledore, once Harry gets up to the office, um, it says that the narration says, Harry glanced hopelessly at Dumbledore's deserted frame, which hung directly behind the headmaster's chair, then turned his back on it. And I was kind of wondering, had Dumbledore's portrait been available, had Dumbledore been in the portrait at the time, would it have been a potential resource for Harry at this moment? Perhaps if Harry hadn't been able to get the memories or, um, you know, could it have been an additional resource? Like you guys were saying, if Snape had been there for Harry after the memories were presented to him, could Dumbledore, Dumbledore's portrait have taken that place? Uh, could that have been a resource or would the portrait have maybe even refused to give information to Harry at that point? I think it couldn't have taken the place of Snape in those memories, but yeah. it certainly could have filled Harry in a little bit more. Um, Dumbledore's portrait could have finally given Harry the reason why he trusted him all those years. I feel like, though, it wouldn't have been as strong as it is through seeing the memories. Hmm. And I'm not sure that Harry would have felt so obligated to go die if he didn't see those memories and hear the words spoken in the way that they were spoken. Yeah, that I was I was wondering that like what is that difference necessarily between seeing it from Snape's memories and hearing it in that conversation versus just perhaps having Dumbledore tell him that. So, uh with all of that pre-Snape stuff out of the way, it's time to jump into the real true prince's tale. Let's go into these memories here and examine the past. And before we even get to Snape in these memories, we have two other individuals who we definitely need to discuss who show up here. So Lily, uh, we get to see Lily in her, in her young, young days for the first time. And she is using some very interesting underage magic. Um, as we see, she is, uh, flying, and she is using her magic to make uh, flowers uh, do weird things. And You know what I love about the swing bit? Hmm. Is that what child hasn't been on a swing and jumped off and felt like they were flying? What child hasn't, Who hasn't done do? that? I right. I was kind of hoping, though, that she would do the thing that every kid wants to do, where she'd go over the bar... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, go all the way around. So cool. <laughs> I thought that's what it was building up towards because that man, Lily, you just threw away an opportunity, <laughs> threw it away. Although the flying was cool, and as a, a few listeners were pointing out in the comments in previous weeks, um, people were wondering if that's maybe something similar to what Harry did when we know in Sorcerer's Stone when he's recalling magical moments and he ends up on the top of the school building and he doesn't know how he got there when he's trying to run off from Dudley. Um, oh, so right. I was wondering if that yeah. was a kind of a meant to be a connect a connection between the two of them. Also, people were pondering if this isn't the kind of, even though this is underage magic, if this isn't somehow the kind of flight that Voldemort and Snape later take advantage of somehow harness to fly. Hmm. That's an interesting connection. Yeah, since we don't really, since we know that wizards, as Rowling has said, most, the average wizard can't fly. Um, right. And also, I mean, I guess since you brought up Voldemort slash whatever, um, it 
made me think about Tom Riddle's magic and how he could control it a little bit. Because it seems like Lily can control it in this moment. Yeah, I I was going to say, she seems to have a lot of control over what she can do at this point, which I, which I think has been explained. It's, it's really unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually the sign of someone who's really powerful later on. Right. Because the only other person that we really see who has control <laughs> over their underage magic is Tom Riddle. Yeah. And I think it's a really great comparison between the two of them. Yeah. A very, you know, subtle one as well. And Snape notes that when he's talking to Lily a little later, that, he says that she has loads of magic um, and that he's observed it when he's been watching them. So even Snape, in, in, in his young age, seems to think that Lily is pretty exceptional in her in her wizardry talents um, at that age. So, which is kind of sad, you know, because I guess that also goes with the whole idea of Lily being kind of, or this idea that there was unlived potential from Lily that we never really got to see her mature into who knows what kind of things she could have done. Um, but perhaps like that amazing fish that that wasn't in the book. Yes. The fish, the lovely fish, the fish. That is one of my favorite added scenes in the entire series. Mm -hmm. I love it. So, cause it feels, Oh God. Okay. Sorry. Wrong movie, wrong book, whatever. (laughs) I love it. Well, and also the idea too, perhaps that, cause we, we've, we've pondered as we know from the prophecy, um, that Lily and James quote, thrice defied Voldemort, which made them a target. Um, so that would Mm -hmm. also perhaps explain how that occurred. If Lily is a very powerful witch, um, maybe she was, you know, a big main player in that thrice defying of Voldemort, whatever that necessarily means. We don't know. Um, I wonder if I was just thinking about, I wonder if the blood magic is something that any kind of quote, ordinary witch or wizard could do, could be a part of, or if it takes somebody with the strength and the kind of, I don't want to say brevity, um, depth of, wizardy of magic i suppose inside of them to make that something that's possible because if we are comparing lily and tom riddle and their their level of magicalness i feel like they're they're pretty close obviously we don't get to see what lily could have become Mm -hmm. but i feel like somebody who's less talented might not have had the same effect on that spell that's a really interesting idea. One well, tying that into because Kat, I know you've said this before. We've all said it before in a few episodes. I, re- I, re- I was listening to a few older episodes, and Kat, you specifically kind of said Lily. You cited Lily in her kind of saint-like nature in the books, mm-hmm. and how she's often in the Harry Potter series put on a pedestal. And really, I I don't think we see anything in this in these memories to contradict that. Like Lily's pretty perfect. In this, in the in these memories, you guys would say, yes. But yeah. remember the lens that you're looking at them through. Yeah, true. Yeah. But and I think I think if you dig hard enough, you can find it. She seems easily swayed by people. Well, but we can. Get well, to that interestingly, later. okay, because that's what I want. The reason I touch on that is because, um, and Allison, I Allison, I always go to you for the biblical explanations because I, I can't I can't do that myself. <laughs> like I don't know enough about that. But there's you know the going along again with the, the idea that, that that Harry Potter kind of derives from a lot of biblical ideas, and I and to attribute the word saint to Lily, 
I don't really think is a stretch narratively. Like, you know, we may we may have our own head cannons of what we think Lily um, kind of does and things, and especially a lot of Mirage's era era fanfic that influences Lily as a character. <laughs> but really, on the page, there is very little she does wrong. She's very she's very eloquent. She's very well spoken. She's um, she's very clear about her views. Uh, and she, she doesn't really seem to be at fault for a lot of the things that occur in these memories. And while you said, Kat, you know, remembering who were, whose lens we're looking through, Rowling has also, if we attach Rowling's clarification to that, which is that pensive memories are not necessarily influenced by the individual. They are a complete truth in their depiction. Sure. Yeah. So I was wondering, uh, like, if what you guys think of that just in terms of Lily as a character, if that I, I don't really know, I guess, where to go with that. But I'm just that idea that Lily's been put on this pedestal and that she is a saint, saint like. Also, remember that that Joe has said that only people who are, quote, pure of heart can make a Patronus. And that includes <laughs> so just take everything with a grain of salt. Just saying. Well, I I think she does seem at least these these scenes where we're seeing her as a child. She seems like a very precocious child. I mean, she she just seems like she is very intelligent, is very aware of herself, and she that's just her personality. But I think we can see, I mean, at least the, the example I'm thinking of is when um, she and Petunia get into the argument on the platform mm. about the letter, that it seems that Snape might have persuaded her into that. And so it feels to me that, at least as a child, maybe, Lily... Lily might be blinded by her loyalty a little bit. Mm-hmm. If she comes to care for someone, she comes to be loyal to someone, they can easily sway mm-hmm. her um, to, an, to an extent. Um, and I think we kind of see that because when they're talking on the train, it sounds like she feels bad for having seen that letter. She's trying to avoid talking about that she's seen the letter and that it, it kind of seems like Snape, I don't want to say goaded, that's not the right word, um, but persuaded doesn't seem strong enough either. Influence. Um, coerced. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Coerced her kind of into going to look for this letter and reading it. Um, and so I think, yes, we're seeing, we're seeing the very bright, precocious little child that she was, but I think we can also see how her virtues can go too far and turn into her vices. Well, and it was... It's perfect that you mentioned uh, Petunia in that because uh, there's three quotes here that I pulled out from the books in relation to Petunia in this situation. And uh, one of them actually doesn't come from Hallows. The first one here does, though, and it's it's when Snape addresses Petunia and he says, you're a muggle. And the narration says, though Petunia evidently did not understand the word, she could hardly mistake the tone. Uh the other two quotes I have here, one, this middle one is actually from Order of the Phoenix. Um, this is a kind of a moment of clarity for all of us. Um, in Order of the Phoenix, when Aunt Petunia blurts out the information on Dementors, she says, I heard that awful boy telling her about them years ago, Petunia said jerkily. And, of course, in Order, Harry leads us to believe that she's talking about James and Lily. It's not the case. As we see here, uh, Snape says verbatim, 
the bit about the Dementors guarding Azkaban and um, that Petunia will later say in Order of the Phoenix. And the last quote I have here about in regards to Petunia's, there was a crack. A branch over Petunia's head had fallen. <clears throat> Lee screamed. The branch caught Petunia on the shoulder and she staggered backward and burst into tears. And the way that, you know, the, 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 this this business with with petunia and snape and their interactions um i was kind of thinking about how with especially with the branch um how snape treats petunia and i was kind of i wanted to open up the question do you guys think that snape is to blame for petunia's how petunia turned out do you think snape is part of that and do you maybe even think too that Petunia is the reason that Snape grows to dislike non-magical folk. Um, I would say yes to the first part and no to the second part. Um, I think because this is Petunia's first interactions with magic. And when you put these all together, Petunia was hurt by magic. That's her first interaction with it is that it's causing her pain. It's causing or fear, you know, um, and so that's interesting. Well, it's the first interaction outside of her family. Her sister. Well, yeah, outside but like her sister who she with, loves and trusts. Yeah, with with the wizarding world knowing what the wizarding world is. Does mm-hmm. that make sense like with her introduction to the world, not just whatever weird things Lily can mm-hmm. do. Um and so it's interesting to think of how that influences how she sees this as they're growing up, when she's older, when Harry gets there, when this world all of a sudden comes back into her life and her very first interactions with this world were painful Mm -hmm. in all sorts of different ways. Picking the three particular quotes I did, I think those quotes to me kind of stood out as the things that built Petunia into who she became. Yeah. And I, and I think, too, that in this moment, we're getting, we're seeing the reasons why Snape was sorted into Slytherin. Mm. Yeah. Because as a child, I mean, and as an adult, he's still this, but he's, he's a jerk. He's a bully. He's rude. Yeah. He's, he's, un, he's unforgiving and he's unaccepting and just straight up mean. He's just, a, he's just mean. And I, it really gives you sympathy per, for Petunia, understandably. She's goading him. She's not making it any mm-hmm. easier on him. And part of that is out of jealousy and ignorance. But part of it is that he's just a jerk. He's just being rude to her. And I do think that Snape is largely to blame for what happens to Petunia later in life. Because if Snape wasn't in the picture, she would still have that relationship with Lily. And she would come to understand that magic can be helpful. It's not hurtful. Yeah. It's not doing anything to her in any way, shape, or form. And she'd be a different person as an adult, personally, is what I think. Well, it's, and, and, you know, before, because that's, I think, hold on to that point, because I think that's a really interesting thing to mull over here. The, the other thing, and Kat, you touched on this a little bit as far as Snape being a bully. Um, I was kind of seeing, I felt like, to me as a reader, because listeners we're going to say, you know, we're, we'll say it straight up. You all already know it. And Christina has, has already said she's no fan of Snape. Um, we are not Snape lovers. And <laughs> that does affect for me how I read, you know, because I, I do see I, that's the lens I see Snape through. 
particularly particularly the moment when the branch falls on petunia and lily is just mortified and snape is the the narration specifically says that when lily runs off snape is confused yeah see oh i'm sorry but i have you know i've been thinking about this a lot and i knew you were going to bring it up (laughs) And I feel like there's so many emotions happening in this moment that it equally could be Lily's fault as much as it was Snape's. Because Lily, I feel like, is Mm hot-headed a little bit. And when she starts to worry about her sister and and Petunia is fighting with Snape, Lily could feel an emotion and that branch is just done. So that's a... I don't know who knows what happens there. I don't know, because I I do think she's definitely feeling strong emotions, but I think she cares enough about both of them that something like... It's the fact that it's a branch falls and is able to hit her, I think, is why I think it's Snape rather than Lily, because I think Lily's wouldn't have... Emotion wouldn't have manifested itself in that way, in any way that would have potentially hurt either of them because she cares about both of them at this point and but if it's um, an uncontrollable emotion okay that's a good point that's true it's a really interesting idea but i i mean i understand i i'm not in i'm just saying that i there's not evidence in either way that it is lily or really that it's snape because it says that he's confused and he doesn't really know what happened that isn't that's a really interesting way to read it because that is i read it as kind of in addition to the the branch falling, the idea that Snape is confused to me kind of, for me, reads as that he's really not... Um, this boy has not been properly socialized. And that's not a... Oh, definitely not. That, that's not his fault. But... You know that that's a that's a product of his of his growing up and his parents and being shell. It, it would it would seem Snape has been very sheltered, um, and kind of stuck with his some. Uh, it would appear to be abusive family, and the to me what this what the branch is is this almost misguided protection on on Snape's part. He thinks he's he's become very like very quickly and. You, you ladies were already kind of pointing it out. The words that Rowling uses when um, Allison, you want to use pull some of those lovely words that Rowling uses for yeah. Snape looking at Lily. Yeah, I, I, I was going to get to this a little bit later. Please pull it um, out now. It's it's it works. But I, I <laughs> okay. I, I very much realized um, a lot of the commenters were talking about. I feel like this is the big point of contention. Is um, does. Does Snape love Lily or is he simply obsessed with her? And um, I, as I was rereading, I noticed the very first time it's described, uh, Harry, dis- or well, the narration, describes Snape looking at Lily. It says he's looking at her with undisguised greed. And the very next time in this actual scene we've been talking about, um, it says his black eyes, eager in the greenish gloom, moved over the pale face, the dark red hair. And it's those words greed and eager Mm -hmm. that send strong signals to me that this is not really love, that this is him wanting to possess her in some way. Um, And... I think if we're talking about him as a Slytherin, um, Snape's very drawn to power. And 
he becomes obsessed with Lily and maybe misinterprets it as love because he has been watching Lily. And that line you brought up of, he says she has loads of magic. He's seen that. Mm -hmm. So there's this, this idea of, um, he sees she's powerful. And so he wants her because she has so much magic and, I'll just keep kind of slowly building up my argument so I don't just go on a s- strong rant at the end well, about well, no, why. I, but... I, think it's in, I think it's important that we bring that up because, as you've said, Michael, the listeners know that we are not Snape sympathizers. We all love his character. He's an amazing character, not a good guy. And I think it's important to point out that first time that we do see Snape looking at Lily, that is a power thing. It's not a love thing. It's not an obsession thing. It's merely about power. That's it. And I think it's really important that that distinction is made. Because I think you're right. I think it turns into what he thinks is love. Yeah. So I've always seen it kind of as a, you know, he's finally found, he's found someone in his own town that also is magical, who's, you know, his same age, um, and kind of also just having that ability to actually talk with somebody who is like him. Um, so that's kind of what I've always before in the past seen this, some of this greed as is that just that, Ooh, good. There's somebody else like me here. See, um, I know I, I agree I, with, I actually agree with that, Christina. And I think that, but I, I don't think that the result is healthy, but I think that, that's no. I think that's correct that like because when we think of the odds of two wizards being in this same town at the same age as Rowling has said that's not very likely that's kind of unusual actually and Snape being so shuttered all his life um it's really kind of suggested that he doesn't interact with peers and that he really is just kind of at home with his mother and father and that things are not well at home yeah and and yeah, I, he's intensely introverted. Yeah, yeah, for real. And, and I can I can see that, but I just I feel like if that was more of just like a pure, more like excitement or um, some other kind of emotion, I, I just feel like the word greed has well, negative no, connotations yes, it, it that are it leading does. to this. And the greed, and I, but I think that's just it: is that Snape has never. The other thing that's suggested here, especially by the Rowling's kind of constant description of his clothing, is that Snape doesn't truly possess anything that belongs to him. Oh yeah, yeah. And this is perhaps the first. You know, he can possess this relationship. This relationship can be his, and that manifests in. blocking petunia out of this relationship as much as he can and i think the for me i read his confusion as snape doesn't understand the sisterly bond between lily and petunia and he just doesn't understand why lily is so interested in having a relationship with petunia because in his eyes she can't offer her anything because she's just a muggle yeah um, she can't go with her to Hogwarts. She can't, you know, she can't do magic. So what's the point of continuing a relationship with her when she can have him? He has magic and he can do the thing, same things she can do. Um, that's kind of where I read that confusion from because Snape doesn't have siblings. He doesn't seem to have had a meaningful relationship with anybody up to this point. 
Um, and remember, yeah. no, I think I think that's partially true too. I mean, the text says right there, the lie did not convince Lily. So I mean, it was most yeah. likely him, but I still, you know, who, who knows what actually happened in that moment? Mm-hmm. Hard to say. Yeah, but um, the other thing that's mentioned too about uh, Petunia, as we kind of dissolve into the memory on platform nine and three quarters, is uh, some letters that were written. And interestingly, there's a lot of stuff that's that that ties into this letter that Petunia wrote to Dumbledore um, to see if she could get into Hogwarts. Um, and uh, the first, the, there are two bits that Rowling actually talked about in relation to that letter. Um, and they they refer not this letter not only ties into the letter that Petunia gets from Dumbledore in Order of the Phoenix, the howler that screams at her. And but also to the letter that he um, writes to Petunia to take Harry in. And I wanted to read these two quotes from from Rowling from previous from out of the books. Um, The first one comes from uh, J.K. Rowling dot com back in the early days um, post Order of the Phoenix when people were asking her about the remember my last letter. And Rowling said, Dumbledore is referring to his last letter, which means, of course, the letter he left upon the Dursley's doorstep when Harry was one year old. But why then, you may well ask, did he not just say, remember my letter? Why did he say my last letter? Well, why, obviously, because there were letters before that. P.S. It has been suggested that I am wrong in saying that Dumbledore's last letter was the one he left on the doorstep with baby Harry, and that he sent a letter since then concerning Harry's illegal flight, uh, uh, flight to school. However, both Dumbledore and I differentiate between letters sent to the Dursleys as a couple and messages directed to Petunia alone. And that's my final word on the subject, though I doubt it will be yours. She meant to the audience and she put a little smiley face there. Um, so she gave us a hint to this coming letter that Petunia might have written something. Um, so we knew that pre Hallows. But the other interesting thing she said was actually during her Carnegie Hall chat in October of 2007. And she said, uh, in response to the question, what did Dumbledore write in the letter to make the Dursleys take Harry? And she said, as you know, as we find out in book seven, Petunia once really wanted to be a part of that world. And you discover that Dumbledore has written to her prior to the Howler. Dumbledore wrote to her very kindly and explained why he couldn't let her come to Hogwarts to become a witch. So Petunia, much as she denies it afterwards, much as she turns against the world that when she met Uncle Vernon, who was the biggest anti-wizard you could ever meet in your life, a tiny part of her, and that's the part, that almost wished Harry luck when she said goodbye to him in this book. She just teetered on the verge of saying, I know what you're up against and I hope it's okay. But she couldn't bring herself to say it. Years of pretending she doesn't care have hardened her. But Dumbledore appealed in the letter you're asking... Uh, and you're asking about so that part of Petunia, so that part of Petunia that did remember wanting desperately to be part of the world, and he appealed to her sense of fair play to a sister that she had hated, because Lily had what she couldn't have. So that's how she how he persuaded Petunia to keep Harry. So this letter means a lot in terms of Petunia's later actions i didn't i didn't really think about this letter in terms of how this letter played into petunia accepting harry um so i thought that was a really interesting revelation on on rowling's part um in addition to that lily points out that 
Snape thinks that there must be wizards working undercover in the postal service. Because how on earth did a letter from a muggle get to Hogwarts? Um, and I was thinking too, with that quote, the issue that can't be exclusive to this sisterly bond being broken, the idea that muggle siblings represent a really huge confidentiality issue in the wizarding world and also the issue of resentment towards their siblings and i was wondering what you guys thought about that like can this be the only case where that has happened have we seen other examples of this like why is rolling to bringing up these issues of individuals who can't have something that others can have like what what is the purpose here life (laughs) (laughs) well that's life right like you're especially if you have siblings like your siblings will always have something be something or at least appear that appear that way that you don't think you have i mean I, i think of me and my siblings um when we were growing up one of my my sister who's just uh a couple years older than me weird example but she's an amazing visual artist like she we'd play and we'd do crafts and stuff and hers always looked perfect and mine looked like crap because I have no patience. (laughs) And, um, and I was always kind of jealous of that. I was jealous of how she could make such beautiful things. And I was never happy with what they could make. I mean, as you get older, you start to see your own talents. And so that kind of lessens a little bit, but I think that's just kind of sibling relationships is, you're always going to be jealous of something your siblings have or can do. Mm-hmm. I think, too, that this moment is – it speaks to the greater lessons in Harry Potter as well, which, you know, one of them – you know, we've got the love and the friendship and the bravery, but I also think acceptance mm. and learning to deal yeah. with the cards that you're dealt and to make lemonade out of your lemons. And I think that that is an underlying theme in a lot of things. It's not necessarily – the biggest one, the one that's out there. But I think it's important to realize that no matter who you are or what you have or where you're going or what you do, there's going to be crap. There's going to be crap. It's just the way life is. And you just kind of have to learn to deal with it and accept the things in your life, love the people in your life, and move on. Just trudge on. Get to the next. What an interesting thing to say because that makes me think of Perhaps the idea here, too, is that we realize as readers that maybe Petunia and Snape aren't very different as people. I I would agree with that. Because they they both end up harboring these lifelong annoyances, regrets, vendettas that they really don't let go until the end. Um, And kind of interesting to think that their interaction is kind of the reason that happened. Like they made each mm-hmm. other that way. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's hard to say what Petunia is like now, mm-hmm. whether she has moved on from that because it's, it's Joe has said that Harry never sees his aunt and uncle again, despite the fact that he sees Dudley yeah. occasionally. So the kids can play blah, blah, whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, they definitely turned each other. It, I mean, Less so on Snape's part, but turned each other into the people that they ended up being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. It just surprised me just because I guess I don't know why it didn't really hit me this like before this reread, but like just how much of a role Petunia plays in in all of this. Um, yeah, she's no innocent. No, for sure. But also oh, in no. the role that Snape plays in making her who she is for the later parts of the books. Um, mm-hmm. It's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Like that's perhaps what's, you know, what's so rewarding about the prince's tale is this, you know, the things that come after are important, definitely. But I think this is really the chapter that it's all been building up to through the series. For sure. So, mm-hmm. um, but we we get on the Hogwarts Express and <laughs> boy, does this play out like every Marauders era fanfic that was ever written before it. Because they just, <laughs> Snape and Lily just so happen to be sitting in the same compartment as James and Sirius. And Kat, you had some points, some excellent points about this. Yeah, there was, a, there's a great moment that I never picked up on before. Probably because this time I'm reading it and I'm actually thinking critically instead of just being <laughs> like, wow, this is so good. This is so good. So there's a quote from James when they're all sitting in the cabin and it says, who wants to be in Slytherin? I think I'd leave, wouldn't you? James asked the boy lounging on the seats opposite him, and with a jolt, Harry realized that it was Sirius. Sirius did not smile. Hmm. Which, okay, the first thing I thought of when I read that, that t- this time is a quote by Draco from Philosopher's Stone. It says, well, no one really knows until they get there, do they? But I know I'll be in Slytherin. All of our family have been. Imagine being in Hufflepuff. I think I'd leave, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Exact same words yeah. about different houses, yeah. and I think, yeah. I think, oh, it sets apart the generations, and I think too. I, I think it's, I think it's interesting, and um, I think it almost offers some hope for Draco if we're comparing them, because we kind of see we see what James became and what he could have become, um, and I think that gives some hope for Draco can make choices the way James made some choices and maybe Draco can come around and maybe, maybe things will change for him. Um, I also think it's interesting to see just how deep and kind of long rooted in these pure blood families, these kind of house divisions are. (laughs) I mean, James's family is all Gryffindors and Draco's family is all Slytherin. So they're kind of looking down at other houses and um, yeah, just, just how deep rooted these divisions are for what basically amounts to high school teams. Mm-hmm. Well, and <laughs> actually that's a perfect segue into what occurs, which is that Snape is very much of the belief that he seems very confident that Lily is going to get into Slytherin. Um, that doesn't happen as we know. That's projecting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's definitely it's totally, it's totally him projecting. Because yeah. um, uh, everything we know about Lily points to the fact that she is not a Slytherin. Yeah. Oh, she's a Gryffindor from the get-go. I mean, she's flying in the air <laughs> with, and laughing. Like, <laughs> Well, and and as we see, that's what occurs. The Sorting Hat does separate the two of them. Snape, Lily goes off to Gryffindor. Does not want to sit with James and Sirius. Um, but does go to the Gryffindor table, <laughs> and Snape goes to Slytherin. And, you know, we get this line later that I wanted to bring up now from Dumbledore um, during the scene where Snape is and Dumbledore are discussing Karkaroff and Goblet of Fire. And Dumbledore says, you know, 
I sometimes think we sought too soon. Ugh. And I wonder, though, had... Because, of course, Dumbledore is implying that Snape has very Gryffindor qualities about him. And as we said earlier, there's some bravery in, in, in you know, the bravery that of Snape's actions is his Gryffindor side. Do you think that Snape would have become a different person had he been in Gryffindor with Lily? Yes, I also have a follow-up question. Thinking of this quote in context, they're talking about Karkaroff. Mm-hmm. Karkaroff went to Hogwarts. What house was he in? <laughs> because what if he was in Gryffindor and he became this, he's almost a Peter Pettigrew figure and he became this coward. And so maybe this quote should be more applied to Karkaroff than to Snape. Sorry to totally sidetrack your conversation, your question, but That's- <laughs> Interesting. I, like, I I don't see textually that it's meant to be for Karkaroff because it's, to me, it's it's meant it's meant towards Snape. It's kind of like I. Well, they're discussing Snape's nature yeah. and his personality, not Karkaroff's. Yeah, I'd well, have to it, reread that passage. Hold up, just a second. <laughs> well, okay, it says right here. Karkaroff's mark is becoming darker too. He is panicking. He fears retribution. He, uh, you know how much he gave the ministry after the dark lord fell karkaroff intends to flee if the mark burns does he said dumbledore softly and are you tempted to join him no said snape i am not such a coward no agreed dumbledore you are a braver man by far than igor karkaroff you know sometimes i think we soar too soon and did karkaroff go to hogwarts i don't i'm pretty sure he did i don't think i don't did. think we know this karkaroff is i don't think we have confirmation on where he went to school um he seems to have a. I don't know. In my mind, I always imagined him going to Durmstrang since that's where he was a headmaster. Head yeah, and he seems to have. He has a pretty tight knit relationship with Dumbledore, and I think people have wondered where Karkaroff kind of grew up because he doesn't have. The interesting thing about how Rowling writes him is he doesn't have an accent like the other students at um, mm-hmm. Durmstrang. Yeah. So he's implied mm-hmm. to be from. have grown up somewhere else. Or maybe have lost his accent, but um. Well, and and the fact that uh, Dumbledore never really, or sorry, not Dumbledore, Voldemort never really got out of England, leads me to believe that for Karkaroff to be a Death Eater, he would have had to be in England, England or yeah, the UK. But if we okay, so if but Better. if we if we are contextualizing the quote in relation to Snape, which I do think it is meant to be for, do. Is it is like I go back to my original question? Do you guys think that it is possible that Snape would have been a different person had he been in Gryffindor? I do. I I think you know that the friendship he had with Lily, um, you know, gave him the chance to be a better person because she was a you know such a great person that you just feel like if he had spent more, you know, if he had spent all of his time around her and not around, you know, these other future Death Eaters, that he would have turned out as a different person. You know, I have, there was this quote, not actually from this book, from another book that I've read before, and I thought it just kind of fit this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says, you know, there's a time in every life when paths are chosen, character is forged. I could have chosen a different path, but I didn't. I failed myself. And it kind of makes me think back to this, you know, it just, you know, 
Snape chose the path he took, but if he had taken a different path um, with a closer friendship with Lily, you know, if he had gotten into a different house, then that would have changed everything, I think. so. I'm going to counter that point by saying that Snape was on that path before he met Lily. I'm going to agree with that. He had, all, he had all those prejudices and all of those feelings of disapproval and feeling superior far before he met Lily. I mean, one of the first things he says to Petunia is that she's a muggle. And that's, that's not something, as terrible this is, it's not something that people generally grow out of if you grow up a racist a bigot it's not something that you really ever change about yourself it's just ingrained in who you are because of your environment how you grew up snape is not from a happy home his you know he even says that his father doesn't like very much he doesn't like many things he doesn't like magic and i think that a lot of that comes from from that home and how he grew up alone isolated in a unloving home. And unfortunately, no, I don't think he would have changed if he were in Gryffindor, but he would never be in Gryffindor because of all those things I just said. Yeah. It would never happen. And, and I think we see from the get go that he has too much ambition and want for power, mm. which is a quite Slytherin quality. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's the same kind of quality that Voldemort has um, this thirst for power mm-hmm. Um, and to be powerful. Um, and you know, as much as some of that is still influenced by his, I think we can agree his abusive childhood. I, I still think he made choices and you can't just put those choices necessarily on. Well, it's interesting that Snape chooses Slytherin and is so, uh, has such an affinity for Slytherin because when he's on the train, and James says what he says about Slytherin, uh, Snape counters with, well, if you'd rather be brawny than brainy. And brainy isn't really the trick, the, the trait we uh, associate with Slytherin so much as we do with Ravenclaw. Um, but I'm assuming that Snape's uh, devotion to Slytherin comes from his mother. Because... Yeah, that's, a, that's what I always yeah. assumed. I always saw yeah. her as... A pretty smart witch mm-hmm. as somebody who was powerful and had kind of something behind her something inside of her and i think a lot of snape in general comes from like the the, te- the text implies that a lot of snape's personality seems to come from his mother um, oh yeah and we know that snape was very devoted to his mother over his father not only from the text here but of course because of the fact that he does call himself the half-blood prince which is meant to be uh uh a moniker to in tribute to his mother. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, there's a, that, that, wow. See that, that conversation's already kind of stunned me because there's so much going on in that alone. Um, because then that's why I want, you know, what you guys were saying actually about how Snape perhaps has that inherent nature in him, that bigotry, that, that prejudice. That's what I was wondering about in terms of Petunia, because she is, a muggle and she's kind of the first one that Snape really target the muggle that Snape truly seems to target is unremarkable and mm-hmm. who gives him that impression of muggles. But at the same time, when he's conversing with Lily in the forest, she asks him, uh, you know, does it matter that I'm muggle born? And he says, no. 
And I think that's supposed to kind of be a bit of a shock for us, the reader, and for Harry, because that's not what we think of Snape as, as somebody who was a follower of the Death Eaters. You know, he, he has a taste, something. though, before he said yeah. that it's not he does. a big deal to be a Muggleborn. He so does. that, you know, that prejudice, prejudice is still there. It, he just, he likes Lily too much already to say otherwise. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely see that later With on. They're fine. Yeah. I mean, that exact same thing yeah, happened. Their final conversation and the mud blood bit. Um, but actually, before that, and as you mentioned, Christina, kind of the the issue of Slytherin for Snape is who he is surrounded by. Of course, we um, hear the names not only of Lucius Malfoy, who is a prefect, um, but uh, some future Death Eaters, Mulciber, who is previously mentioned, his big mention is in Goblet of Fire. Karkaroff tries to kind of. Uh, Karkaroff mentions him as one of his names of somebody who is particularly good at the Imperius curse and Avery, who plays a large background role in order of the Phoenix. He's the one who tips Voldemort off to getting the prophecy. And of course he is later punished for his incompetence. Um, but, uh, uh, Rowling was actually asked a question directly about these, these characters in relation to Snape. And I think it's a question a lot of the fandom kind of goes back to as an argument against Snape and his affections for Lily. Um, this was asked in, during her Bloomsbury.com chat in, uh, in 2007, right after the book was published. And the question was, Lily detested Mulciber and Avery. If Snape really loved her, why didn't he sacrifice their company for her sake? And Rowling responded, well, that is Snape's tragedy. Given his time over again, he would not be, have become a Death Eater. But like many insecure, vulnerable people, like a Wormtail, he craved membership of something big and powerful, something impressive. He wanted Lily, and he wanted Mulciber, too. He never really understood Lily's aversion. He was so blinded by his attraction to the dark side, he thought he would fi- she would find him impressive if he became a real Death Eater. What do you guys think about that? I think this is one of the reasons why he, it's obviously an obsession, not a love. Um, I think if you truly love someone, you're going to try and come to understand their values. And um, hold on, we're scrolling down to my half page paragraph of notes <laughs> on this, because this is one of my big, big points I thought of was he doesn't care about Lily's values. He doesn't see her as a person and say, look at all of her beautiful strengths she want makes me want to be a better person, which at least to me is one of the big parts of when you love someone that you see all the, you see the good qualities in that person and you want to be like that. You want to, you want to strive to be what they already are. They make you want to be better. Um, and because he's so obsessed with the dark side, he can't, he can't see her values. He doesn't share her values. He's not, trying to necessarily even understand her values he he's just obsessed with her well like you said allison earlier what a slytherin thing to think that even though like by this point what's so fascinating to me is that lily and we'll and there's a quote from rolling later that discusses this that i pulled but that lily does have feelings for snape she has a very strong friendship at least with snape and Rowling, yeah. as we'll see in a quote later, confirmed that that could have transcended into something more had Snape made different choices. And how perfect, like you said, Allison, that he is sorted into Slytherin because he can't see that. 
And what he thinks is that if he becomes a Death Eater, that, that'll that be enough to impress her. That he, as himself, as he is now, is not impressive enough for Lily, he thinks. And that he has to do more. Oh. Which just furthers the point that he doesn't really know who Lily is. Is that he's looking yeah. at her exterior, her magic, her beautiful green eyes. He's not looking at her as a person, but much more of an asset or somebody to impress and align himself with. And I think that well, that's, that's he, a major difference. That's why he can't see uh, that's why he can't see her and Harry. Because all he sees is Harry's exterior. He doesn't see all the things that everyone else sees, Harry's heart, Harry's courage, the things that Harry really inherited in his personality from his mother. Mm-hmm. He's obsessed with maybe misinterpreting as love the idea of Lily instead of Lily herself. And I think that if at some point, if they did get together, it would be a very dysfunctional relationship because even if Snape had made choices and he had chosen Gryffindor and he got sorted into Gryffindor and they were together, those beliefs are always going to be there. He's always going to think of people as muggles. He's always going to have that superiority complex about him Mm. and his past is always going to be there and it wouldn't have lasted in their friendship just like it did when he was in slytherin faded away well and actually i wanted to i i I was I've i've been pulling quotes all through this chapter but i did want to read this particular passage from page 674 um and this is this this kind of was the 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 big one for me. Let's see where where to begin though. Six seventy four. Aha ha 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 ha. This is the part where Lily and Snape are having a little chat about about the Whomping Willow incident, um, and interestingly, a lot about Lupin actually. And Lily says, "I know your theory," said Lily, and she sounded cold. Why are you so obsessed with them anyway? Why do you care what they're doing at night? I'm just trying to show you they're not as wonderful as everyone seems to think they are. The intensity of his gaze made her blush. They don't use dark magic, though. She dropped her voice. And you're being really ungrateful. I heard what happened the other night. You went sneaking around that tunnel by the Whomping Willow, and James Potter saved you from whatever's down there. Snape's whole face contorted, and he spluttered, Saved? Saved? You think he was playing the hero? He was saving his neck and his friends, too. You're not going to... I won't let you... Let me. Let me. Lily's bright green eyes were slits. Snape backtracked at once. I didn't mean... I just don't want you to be made a fool of. He fancies you. James Potter, he fancies you. The words seemed wrenched from him against his will. And he's not... Everyone thinks... Big Quidditch hero. Snape's bitterness and dislike were rendering him incoherent, and Lily's eyebrows were travelling farther and farther up her forehead. I know James Potter's an arrogant toe rag, she said, cutting across Snape. I don't need you to tell me that. But Mulciber's and Avery's idea of humour is just evil. Evil, Sev. I don't understand how you can be friends with them. Harry doubted that Snape had even heard her strictures on Mulciber and Avery. The moment she had insulted James Potter, his whole body had relaxed, 
and as they walked away, there was a new spring in Snape's step. And that, to me, that particular passage is kind of the epitome of the possessive bit. Yeah. That, that, that I won't let you bit. And Lily picks up on it immediately and is not okay with it. In fact, that's, that's kind of the moment where, like, Lily is most like, um, Ginny in many ways. Oh, yeah. That the yeah. fierce look, the red hair, the, you know, the independent streak. And why I take such issue with Snape's, you know, feelings towards Lily. While, while it may be love on his end, that I think that love is for that that potential love that Lily could have had is is falling apart because she had it for him. She had feelings for him at this point. She was very like she's she seems to be. The funny thing is that Snape has picked up on this bit where James has feelings for Lily, and Lily doesn't seem to have picked up on it. Like, she has no interest in James. It's almost that Snape, in a way, did... Uh, my question here was, do you guys actually think that maybe, in a way, Snape actually drove Lily to James? Very much like Voldemort in the prophecy. It's self-fulfilling. <laughs> Everything, you know, so many things in life are self-fulfilling. And Snape acted like a jackass and tried to control her and own her and all of those things. It's in the text there, so listeners, don't be screaming at me. <laughs> um, and it's self, you know, it's self-prophesizing. He, you be, you you become the thing, and you you tend to steer other people towards the one thing you don't want to happen when you actively try not to make it happen. Instead of improving yourself when you're trying to change somebody else, that's not that's not the point of life. It's to change yourself and to make yourself yeah. the best person possible and not change somebody else to fit who you want them to be for you. And that's where I think James wins Lily over because I think well I well I think James and Lily would have ended up together eventually. Um I, I think this could have been the thing that made Lily notice James and maybe notice that kind of thing that that idea of values and that maybe James saw when Lily thought things were wrong he saw her values he could see his own behavior through her eyes and so he changed to because he could see how he was being wrong does that does this make sense I don't no, know it I'm makes perfect sense, sense <laughs> because that what you're saying is the moment that we see once again where the, I think Rowling puts it here again in a truncated form to make us understand the full consequences of this moment. But when yeah. when Snape calls Lily a mudblood, and mm. that's there, and, and and like you're saying, Allison, and in a way, it's not really cited. Lily's already cited it here in the passage that I just read that happens quite a bit before the mudblood incident. But as we saw in Order of the Phoenix. James, even though Lily doesn't like him by that point during this incident with the tree and the mudblood, James forcefully asks Snape to apologize for calling her a mudblood. And although Lily's, Lily doesn't approve of the way James handles the situation, that idea that James doesn't have this prejudice does fall in line with her. And Snape brought yeah. it out by accident. Like you said, Kat, he made the thing happen. He made the thing happen that he didn't want to happen most. Mm -hmm. 
by behaving that way. Because Lily so perfectly, um, let's see, because I didn't, I didn't say the page, but ah, here it is. Um, so perfectly defines the core contradiction of the idea that there can be exceptions when one is prejudiced. And uh, because during their conversation um, outside of Gryffindor Tower, uh, Lily ends their friendship. She says, I can't pretend anymore. You've chosen your way, I've chosen mine. No, listen, I didn't mean to call me mudblood, but you call everyone of my birth mudblood, Severus. Why should I be any different? And that's it. That's the end for Lily. That The love is, I would say, the love is lost at that point. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, the quotes that I wanted to pull in that moment is... Rowling was asked during the Bloomsbury chat, did Lily ever have feelings back for Snape? And she confirmed, yes. She might even have grown to love him romantically. She certainly loved him as a friend. If he had not loved dark magic so much and been drawn to such loathsome acts and people. So I think that as far as the love issue, that answers completely what happened on Lily's end. There, there was it. It never yeah. transcended into romantic love. Um, it stayed at a friendship level, and that's and that's on Snape's. That's that's on his conscience. That's his fault, definitely. Because it all has to do with his choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said before, like if you love somebody, you're going to try and change yourself to be a better person and to listen to their beliefs and really take them in and be that person for them because you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Snape never achieved that. He didn't even try. No, no. So, but, um, time passes quite a bit. And that's actually the part, you know, where we get a bit of a confirmation that Snape might've actually set this up because Harry waits for the memories for a little bit as they try to reform themselves. And, we move from Snape and Lily to Snape and Dumbledore. And I wanted to kind of lay out the timeline for myself just because it was interesting. I thought it was interesting. Rowling must have very- worked very hard to pick which moment she wanted to portray um, between Snape and Dumbledore. And there's about seven key moments. The first one where Snape talks to Dumbledore and pleads with him about fixing his mistake occurs somewhere between 79 to 80. That's before the series even begins, but it's post the prophecy. The second scene takes place somewhere between October 31st and November 1st of 1980. It's during Sorcerer's Stone, but in that very first chapter, um, somewhere around there. Scene three, uh, which is when Snape is complaining about Harry as a human being, (laughs) takes place on September 6th, 1991. And that's right after Harry's first potions lesson. Scene four, which is probably one of the major ones out of all of these, is um, during which Dumbledore and Snape discuss Karkaroff, is occurring. We actually know close to the time. It's near midnight on December 25th, 1994. And that's during Goblet of Fire. The last three scenes all take place around Half-Blood. Scene 5 is somewhere in July 96 between Order and Half-Blood, probably closer to the latter when uh, Snape is trying to help Dumbledore with his hand. 
and scene six and seven both take place on the same day, somewhere we don't actually know where. From somewhere between September of 96 and May of 97, likely in May, as it's cited that Harry has been in detention multiple times by that point. Um, so I just wanted to map that out because it, it's, it just seems so carefully chosen on Rowling's part because we'd get these lovely little throwbacks. Interestingly, we get nothing from, uh, no moments from Chamber or Prisoner in these particular sets of flashbacks. Um, we've kind of had our fill of Prisoner from the Marauders era stuff. Not really much about Chamber, though. Um, not really that much about Order, either. But Order is referenced in some of the discussion. And... Uh, the first, one of the first big moments we get, of course, is with that first scene between 79 and 80 when, uh, Snape is begging for Dumbledore to help. And Dumbledore says, if she means so much to you, surely Lord Voldemort will spare her. Could you not ask for mercy for the mother in exchange for the son? I have, I have asked him, you disgust me, said Dumbledore, and Harry had never heard so much contempt in his voice. Snape seemed to shrink a little. You do not care, then, about the deaths of her husband and child. They can die as long as you have what you want. And, boy, what a quote that is. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? <laughs> we, uh, we had some comments um, from last week that were kind of talking about this scene, and some people were saying that they felt like Snape was going to say he asked for protection for James and Harry as well, or that there was no way he could have. Um, But I'm going to say he didn't just because of the way he phrases things. Um, There was a lot of question about, uh, he does say hide them all then. Yeah. Um, But right after that, he says, hide her, them. Mm hmm. Say, or, like, save them. I can't he remember says, the exact he wording. Says, keep um, them safe. Exactly. So I feel like any way he's wording it, that might sound in this moment like he's trying to... That he asked for protection for James and Harry is... He's just trying to appease Dumbledore. He's so desperate, again, kind of going back to this... To have the chance to maybe make it up to Lily, to possess Lily, to have... To have that in the future, to have the possibility of that, that he will do anything at this point. Yeah, there's no possibility whatsoever in that moment that he's asking or was going to ask about James and Harry as well. Because Dumbledore phrases it very specifically. If she means that much to you, surely Lord Voldemort will spare her. Could you not ask for mercy for the mother in exchange for the son? He says, I have. I have asked him. He's responding directly to that question that's all about Lily. So, yeah. sorry, but no, he, there's no way he was going to ask about James and uh, Harry as well. He doesn't care about them at all in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I think that's why Dumbledore asks the question that way. Because mm-hmm. Dumbledore sets it up as a trap to see what mm-hmm. Snape's... Very much so. Oh, definitely. Honest, what Snape's honest reaction is to that question. Was Dumbledore transfiguration at this point mm, no he's no headmaster. i think he has to be no, headmaster he by this point headmaster. is he okay yeah. just curious yeah yeah this is this is 1980 yeah he's 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 headmaster yeah i know i'm astounded though rereading this at how overtly manipulative dumbledore is in this scene and in all the scenes that follow 
Um, I'm n- I'm he's not. just like I'm not at all. Well, <laughs> but it's just so overt. I think is what I was most surprised at. And that's at. what's so fascinating about Dumbledore in these scenes, because Dumbledore is not really... Dumbledore, in many ways, is not the Dumbledore we're familiar with in these scenes. Um, this is the, this yeah, is almost true. the Dumbledore that Aberforth was talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. for sure. This this uh, uh, An individual has a, an ability to manipulate. I mean, now the thing here in... I think... This is why I've never really been mad at Dumbledore, at least in this particular, when it starts. Because Snape is the one who initiates this. Snape comes to Dumbledore, right? So is it unfair for Dumbledore to to utilize Snape this way? To play on his emotions like this? Uh, is it fair? Ooh. Is that what you asked? Is it unfair? Is it unfair? Uh, that's a really tough question because I almost, isn't that kind of, isn't that kind of what Snape's been doing the whole time? I'm just one to other people. Well, I'm just one, I guess I'm wondering in terms of, because, okay, so if we are thinking of it in comparison to Snape, Snape, and this gets into the, this gets into that phrase, the greater good, because Snape is doing it purely for his own individual self versus Dumbledore, Mm -hmm. who is doing it for a larger cause. Dumbledore isn't just doing this to protect Harry. Dumbledore reveals that he has the foreknowledge that Voldemort will come back and that things will get bad and that he needs to protect Harry to ensure that doesn't happen. Um, And that's why I say, I I imagine Dumbledore phrases the question this way is because he has, he gets that justification that Snape is kind of a horrible person. So then let's pretend for a minute that Dumbledore is doing it also for Snape. To teach Snape something about himself and his loyalties and where they need to be. Mm. And that's maybe where the sorting comment comes from. Because Dumbledore is perhaps trying to show Snape what he could have been. The other side of his life, of his choices. That's see, and that's everything. That's a great lead into the big to a big question I have about Snape and Dumbledore, which is really what is their relationship? Are they? I pondered: Are they father? Is it kind of like a father son relationship? Is it a reluctant mentor and student? Do these two grow to tolerate, like, even perhaps respect one another? What do you guys feel based on how you read the text? Christina, jump in and tell us how you feel about this. <laughs> hmm. Uh, I'll go if you don't have something ready. I'll go. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> I'll hop in later. So I'm going to take a real world reference and put this in here. I'm a big fan of the Mythbusters. And I don't know if you guys know anything about them, but Adam and Jamie are these two people. They did Mythbusters for like 14, 15 years. They work incredibly well together. They understand each other, they get each other's intentions, and they can understand each other's minds, how they think, how they act, and how they perceive the world. Mm -hmm. Off screen, they can't stand each other. They don't like each other. They don't really understand each other in a personal manner. I feel in some way that this very much is the Dumbledore and Snape relationship. I think that Dumbledore wholeheartedly understands who Snape is, who Snape could have been, who Snape could be, 
and also who he could have been. Um, and I'm talking about as a child, as an adult, because I feel like Snape has so many paths that he could have been on. Hmm. And so for me, Dumbledore to Snape is more of a teacher and not so much a mentor because I'm not sure Snape gets anything from Dumbledore. I think that yeah. Dumbledore gives himself to Snape and instills things in Snape without Snape realizing that that's what's happening. And that's why I think it can't be a mentor relationship because a mentor-mentee relationship, the the mentee is consciously aware and wants that from somebody. Snape doesn't want that for himself. The only thing that he wants from Dumbledore is protection for Lily. And he doesn't see himself coming out of that situation any different or better changed in any way, in any way. The only, his end goal is purely Lily. So again, for me, Dumbledore to Snape, teacher. Snape to Dumbledore is purely a tool. Um, he's a means to an end. I think Dumbledore... In Snape's eyes, maybe comes to be somebody that he cares about, but in the same way that Voldemort cares about his Death Eaters, not in any sort of feeling emotional way, but more as a, I'm going to protect the crap out of you because you're going to help protect the person that I, quote, loved and her son. Yeah, I, I really do see this kind of like business relationship thing almost even more than a, a teacher I, I just I feel like I can't think of a good metaphor for it you know to, or analogy for it just to because there isn't any there there's so much tension in this relationship I feel like that any kind of like hierarchical I can't say that word whatever um hierarchical like relationship would have it all I feel like it wouldn't have this certain kind of tension and so much of it. So yeah, I'm like, I'm failing on what to compare it to, but yeah, I kind of agree with, I mean, you know, you think of it kind of like a strange relationship at work or something like that. Two people who are kind of working on the same thing, but maybe don't see eye to eye all the time, but still have to work together um, to accomplish their goal. Um, you know, maybe taking some things from each other here and there, but still sometimes thinking that you've got the right idea and the other person doesn't. And the thing that I love about that too is that you're talking about working towards a common goal. Their goals, totally different. They're not even remotely the same thing. Not even remotely the same thing. Dumbledore knows that. Snape has no idea. Snape has no idea. And Snape is... That just proves the fact that Snape is purely doing everything that he's doing for one simple reason. And it's Lily. And he hasn't changed at all. Oh, sorry. Whew, getting all fired up over here. No, that's... Well, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't even think it's the real Lily because he doesn't know the real Lily. It's his... It's his idealized... What was the word I used before? Oh my gosh, I can't think of language today. Um, it's... It's the Lily that he's kind of constructed for himself. Well, and you have to remember, he stops, he stops knowing Lily when she's, what, 15? Mm-hmm. 
Definitely, he doesn't know yeah. anything about her after that point. So everything is romanticized. Everything is those heightened teenage emotions that you feel. And those emotions, I feel personally, that you rarely feel those again in your life. Those, those, mm-hmm. that first crush, that first obsession, that first person that you just can't get out of your head. You're, you won't feel those again, I think, in the same way because your maturity level changes and your entire outlook on life changes. And unfortunately, Snape never really grew out of that and he never got to know Lily. Never had the chance. I mean, she was killed. And I think that that's a big downfall for him, too. Yeah, there's a pretty big running theme throughout the Potter series of, like, stunted adults. Like, they... A lot of a lot of the yeah. adults kind of they're, the vic- they're they're a victim of their lack of growth. A lot of them, mm-hmm. um, they kind of fall on their own swords a few times, and uh, yeah. And I well, and I asked this question as far as Dumbledore and Snape's relationship because I I feel like in these in these seven scenes you actually kind of see a, an evolution of some sort. It's and it's not like like you both were saying it's like it's such a bizarre relationship that there's maybe no way to perfectly define it but i kind of think like in terms of their first meeting versus the moment one of my favorite ones of the memories is the one where snape is helping dumbledore contain the curse in his hand and it's kind Mm. it's the only moment of actually of humor in this chapter because snape and and dumbledore actually kind of trade a bit of dry humor between each other and it's very casual and they seem to have both like there seems to be a, a quickened pace to their discussion in that scene that suggests that they they know how each other talk by that point. Um, and they've just they've become more familiar with each other. It's it's a relationship that at least functions on some level um, with success. And, you know, that is the moment too where Dumbledore asks Snape to kill him. And he does so reluctantly, but Snape agrees to that, um, which is a big thing to agree to. And of course, that you know, we that there's a big piece there where um, uh, Snape is arguing, well, why don't why don't you just have Malfoy do it? Because he's he's been arranged to do it. And Dumbledore says, Malfoy's soul is not yet so damaged. Said Dumbledore, I would not have it ripped apart on my account. And my soul, Dumbledore, mine, you alone know how, whether it will harm your soul to help an old man avoid pain and humiliation, said Dumbledore. There's a lot there in the the idea of just, per, like, we were kind of skirting around before with the discussion about how Dumbledore views Snape, his soul, the idea that is, is Snape's soul even whole anymore? Is is there anything to damage, or is this act really a, a something that could damage the soul? As it's kind of a form of euthanasia, where he's helping him die. Um, I don't know, like that. That and that. that this part also gets into the bigger question of how long or how much negativity is coming out of Dumbledore in this relationship. How much he is by this point purely using Snape. Um, mm-hmm. and how dangerous it's become and how, how Dumbledore, again, the, the part of Dumbledore that Aberforth has talked about that Dumbledore begins to see people as chess pieces, as tools, um, and takes advantage of that because I think that's, that's Dumbledore's bad side coming out here. 
the side that a lot of people don't like about Dumbledore. But isn't that what Snape's doing to Dumbledore? How so? Yeah, that, there's manipulation on both sides, I think. Well, because Snape, I mean, again, everything I said, like, he's not doing this because he wants to change himself or he wants some sort of different outcome. He's doing this purely for the one and simple goal that he's had the entire time. You know, the promise that he made to Dumbledore. Well, and oh, no. is it, but isn't it touching then in that respect? Isn't that the interesting thing about what's touching for Vol- for Dumbledore in that end scene where the you know one of the last memories when Snape clarifies that he hasn't been doing this for Harry and of course the classic moment it's tattooed on every millennial's ankle or back. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. It's it's always and it's it's the doe patronus coming out of Snape's wand and Dumbledore is so emotionally touched by that. And what what's going on in that scene for those two? Like what's what is because that's almost the end of that relationship between the two of them. That's the last time past Snape talking to Dumbledore's portrait, which I kind of can't really count because that's just an imprint of Dumbledore. It's not really Dumbledore. Um, what is the, where does their relationship, where, where does that relationship end? What is, what does that mean for Dumbledore to see that? Because Dumbledore is somebody who espouses ideas of love and seems to have a deep understanding of love. So why does this moment with the silver doe touch him? So I, I take serious issue with this scene. So, um, but can we think of why? Why can can you think of why it would touch Dumbledore in that way? Because it does. He cries. He's in tears. Um, and and why? What did? What is it that brings him to tears about this? So, uh, this is out there because this is also just how I'm seeing what's happening in this scene. But Snape. Snape's love for Lily is ingrained in his Patronus, which, to be honest, is a pale shade of something to love, to put that love towards. When there is a living, breathing human that is this person, a part of this person that he's not seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe I'm reaching to say Dumbledore's almost upset that Snape seems to claim to still love Lily. He, his Patronus is a doe still, but he can't see Lily in her son. And he's going to treat her son in a way that would have been absolutely deplorable to her and is deplorable to the idea of loving someone. Hmm. That. Like I said, that could totally well, just be me interpreting this well, no, scene no, no, no. crazy. And- <laughs> no, because I think there's it's open to interpretation. Like there really is the the way I interpret it, and because and it's a, it's like I don't necessarily agree with how these characters feel, but I think it's a kind of a I think it fits with how I see them in my head and how the the narration treats them. But I almost kind of want, and especially too with the further revelations about Dumbledore from Rowling, but. Um, Someone and, and and this is why this is another reason why I'm disappointed that the Grindelwald story doesn't really fully make its way into the in how it affected Dumbledore into the into Deathly Hallows because I I pun, I ponder if because we know that Dumbledore became as Rowling put it he became asexual after 
after his uh, after his um the big stuff with Grindelwald he he never had a relationship again he turned to books um and he never had an interest in a in a relationship with anybody after that and that ostensibly he still kind of harbored these feelings for Grindelwald to some degree and i just wonder if that wasn't something that moved dumbledore i don't know if it's that um... i like i I've, I've pondered if it's something within dumbledore about himself because we spend these whole memories looking at a Dumbledore that we don't like, the Dumbledore that Aberforth told us exists that is very cold and sees people as kind of, you know, either full of love or full of hate and um, isn't seeing the in-betweens. And there's there's so many possibilities. I don't know if I can possibly cover them all. I'm kind of hoping some of you, like you guys, will say what other things this could be. <laughs> I guess out of my ignorance, this is the only time I've ever read this and actually thought it was Dumbledore's eyes that were full of tears. I know. I always kind of thought it was Snape's eyes. <clears throat> How is this worded? It says, Dumbledore watched her fly away, and as her silvery glow faded, he turned back to Snape, and his eyes were full of tears. Yeah. Mm. And he's... I can see both ways. Yeah, I just don't, like, because I, I don't know what it is that particularly touched Dumbledore in this moment. Um, there just could be so many things, I guess, possibly. I guess that's a really good podcast question of the week, isn't it? Certainly could be. Ooh. So, from this moment on, we get to kind of the last section. Dumbledore has has died, and Snape is alone. And this is kind of the best part to close up the chapter with, to really talk about Snape. And and actually, Allison, you touched on this just a moment ago about the idea that, you know, the true tragedy perhaps is that perhaps the reason Dumbledore is reacting this way is because Snape never sees Harry and for who he truly is. And interestingly, um, there's, there's two moments where that comes up between Dumbledore and, and Snape. And the first one is in the moment from September 6th of Harry's first year, where Snape says, Mediocre, arrogant as his father, a determined rule-breaker, delighted to find himself famous, attention-seeking, and impertinent. You see what you expect to see, Severus, said Dumbledore, with, without raising his eyes from a copy of Transfiguration today. Other teachers report that the boy is modest, likable, and reasonably talented. Personally, I find him an engaging child. And it comes up again um, later on in another one of the memories. Uh, and Snape again says he is his father over again in looks, perhaps. But his deepest nature is much more like his mother's. And to me, that's, again, one of my biggest frustrations with, with the argument that the romanticizing of Snape seeing Lily's eyes in Harry and asking to, to, for him to look at him before he dies um and that kind of using that as the justification for snape's heroism because this is to me the the problem like you said allison there is a living breathing person who carries lily within him in the magical sense quite literally he has her blood and it's magical um but the idea too that he as a person is lily um and snape Rather than choose to see that, chooses to see, as you guys mentioned before, the physical attributes. He looks like James. 
So therefore, he is James to Snape. And he can never get past that. He doesn't see that because he never really knew who Lily was. He was obsessed over her magical talent and her um, probably outspokenness, I would imagine, a little bit, and her looks. Yeah. And probably her confidence, too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's it's interesting because Snape and Lily did spend, ostensibly, as we are led to believe, they did spend quite a bit of time together before they went. At least a year, they probably saw a lot of each other. Um, as children. As children, yes, absolutely. Um, but 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 uh, I'm, I guess what I'm thinking there, and, and they did also at least spend pretty good chunks of their f- f- years before year five together. They saw each other quite a bit. Um, and even though Snape maybe doesn't, while Snape sees that surface value, it's it's interesting that he did spend all this time with Lily and just managed not to to even be able to see the parts about her that matter in Harry. Um, I think, and that's the part of contention, I guess, because I just, it's, it's amazingly, it's, it's just amazing to me that Snape never got Lily in any respect. And part of me doesn't want to believe it, um, that he just didn't understand Lily at all. But textually, I don't really see any other reason to think otherwise. Yeah, I I was going to say, the conversations we see between them, he's never asking her about herself. I mean, that conversation in the forest, she's asking him about the wizarding world, he's responding, then she asks him about his home life. It's all very focused on him. There's no real focus on who Lily is in that conversation at all. And again, there's there's the tragedy, perhaps, that really, there was that... There was that potential for Lily to feel something more for Snape because she knew him really well and he didn't know her. Mm-hmm. And we had a comment from Snape's Many Buttons actually this past week on the main site, which I really, I wanted to read out because I thought it was an excellent comment um, that said, regarding Snape's last words, of course, his last words when he dies in the previous chapter, the idea that Snape looks into Harry's eyes to see Lily's eyes is probably the most popular theory, but it is not stated definitely in the te- definitively in the text. I guess it's one of those things everyone has to interpret for themselves. I've seen some very nice posts suggesting that rather than seeing Lily in Harry's eyes, this is the moment when Snape finally sees Harry for who he is, rather than as a reflection of his parents. Here is the boy he's protected, and as far as Snape knows, he has just given him the information that will send him willingly to his death, and he finally sees him as just Harry. Oh, that's so romantic and beautiful. <laughs> well, I was going to I don't believe that's true. <laughs> so we don't agree with this. No. I I see something nice in it. I Because the, the because there is the fair point from Snape's many buttons that when Snape says look at me, it's not elaborated on. We get no definitive in the movie it is in the movie it is well movie doesn't count but put the movie aside no i know but (laughs) the movie has its reasons for doing that i think actually that are valid but he in the book there isn't any elaboration on it sorry no (laughs) it's i think that's one that the listeners no see listen if you read it that way you're going to assume that Snape can get past 
his racism, his bigotry, all of his prejudices against Harry in two minutes. He's had how many years to do that? I'm sorry. Just no, Snape is not a big enough person to care about anybody but himself and his motivations. This has nothing to do with seeing Harry or seeing who he really is and not seeing Lily. Now, the last thing he'd want to see in his life, I think, is the closest thing he could get to the person that he had this love for. Um, And Harry's how he can get that. It's not Harry he's seeing. It's a selfish notion, like most of the things that Snape does. I think I still agree with that, but... I kind of like this idea because I'm a sap <laughs> and I love having, I don't know, but I, I think I still, I think I still agree that. Yeah. Well, to wrap up, Rowling had her say in 2007, both on the Bloomsbury chat and at Carnegie hall. The first one came at during the Bloomsbury checks. That was in June of 07. And she was asked straightforward, Do you think Snape is a hero? Her response was, yes, I do. Though, a very flawed hero. An anti-hero, perhaps. He is not a particularly likable man in many ways. He remains rather cruel, a bully, riddled with bitterness and insecurity. And yet he loved, and showed loyalty to that love. She also said, um, in response to a question at Carnegie Hall in October of that same year, Uh, Somebody asked, is Severus Snape's portrait in the headmaster's office? And her response was, some have been asking me why hasn't the portrait appeared immediately? It doesn't. The reason is that the perception in the castle itself, and everyone who was in the castle, because Snape kept his secret so well, was that he abandoned his post. Which, side note, kind of confirms what we were talking about a few chapters ago, that Hogwarts has somewhat of a sentience of its own because Hogwarts itself decided to perceive that Snape was not worthy of a portrait. But continuing on, So all the portraits you see in the headmaster's study are all headmasters and headmistresses who died. It's like British royals. You only get good press if you die in office. Abdication is not acceptable. I know because I thought this one through, though, because it was very important to me. I know Harry would have insisted that Snape's portrait was on that wall right beside Dumbledore's. As for whether Harry would go back to talk to him, I think, I'm not sure he would have done. A week after the book's release, I went onto a fan site because I was looking for questions to put up on my website, which is sometimes difficult. And I was so heartened to see that people on the message boards were still arguing about Snape. The book was out, and they were still arguing whether Snape was a good guy. But that was really wonderful to me, because there's a question there. Was Snape a good guy or not? In many ways, he really wasn't. So I haven't been deliberately misleading everyone all this time when I say that he's a good guy, because even though he did love and he loved very deeply, and he was a very brave man, both qualities I admire above anything else, he was bitter and he was vindictive. But right at the very, very end, he did, as your question acknowledges, achieve a kind of peace together And I tried to show that in the epilogue. So, with that in mind, ladies, your final thoughts on Snape. Ready, set, go. Do I have any more thoughts to give? (laughs) (laughs) I still don't really like him a lot. Fair enough. 
I will say that he is my favorite person to debate. And whenever I get into a Harry Potter discussion with somebody, somehow it always ends up at Snape. And I love it. I love the fact that we can sit here and we have been podcasting for three hours, by the way. I don't, I doubt the show will be that long, but just so you listeners know, um, we actually have put a lot into this and we have talked about a lot of things and I feel like we've done Snape justice. Obviously there's nobody on this podcast that loves him and, uh, I think it's going to be whew, I think it's going to be good and uh that's it. For Snape for me is not a hero. He's brave, sure. Not a nice guy. Did not love in the truest sense of the word in my opinion. And uh but good. I don't care that Harry named his kid after him. That's cool. That's Harry's choice, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Allison? Um, as a character, as as a character to study to debate over, fantastic. Probably one of my favorites in all of literature ever. As a person, crap. Hate him. <laughs> um, because he's he's just he's rude, he's vindictive, he picks on children for heaven's sake. Um and like Kat said, I it's not love. He may think of it as love. He may justify to himself that he loves Lily and that's why he's doing this. But it's an infatuation. It's an obsession. It's not loving someone in the kind of true, beautiful love that we want. You know, I think that I think a lot of people say, oh, this is kind of a fairy tale, unrequited love. But I don't think that's the it's the kind of love that fairy tales and things like that are, are trying to get across. Um, not that those are necessarily even real love, but um, yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating debate. And I think the way that JKR was able to craft such a character that almost 10 years later, we're still having fierce debates on is absolutely incredible. And it's one of, it's one of the true gems that has come from Harry Potter is this, this such a gray character that is going to open up so many different facets of life and choices and who people are and what people can be. Wow. Well, I will say for my last bit on Snape that I pretty much agree with you ladies. I, I think he's a, an exceptional, exceptionally written character by rolling. He, like you said, Allison, the fact that we can still talk about him like this after all this time, always, um, <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, is very remarkable and that he's, and that so many people connect with Snape in various ways, you know, uh, so many readers connect with him in, in different ways and react to him in different ways is amazing. I, I'll admit much of my bias really does. I really does come from the fact that he got Lupin fired in Prisoner of Azkaban. And I think that's a huge <laughs> thing. That, to me, that's a huge strike against him. But also, I think my biggest, one of my biggest complaints about Snape in his adult years is that he is, as a, as a teacher, Snape has, there's so many, like we've discussed throughout this episode, there's so many opportunities for Snape to have made better life choices. And, uh, as a teacher, he has such influence over young people and as, and 
the the fact that he treats the students so horribly i i can i can't get as an educator myself i can't get past that because i can't advocate snape's teaching style at all um and i've i've, I've actually seen some listeners who stand up for snape's teaching um methods uh as actually being effective and i don't believe that at all i hate that snape is a bully i hate that he's I hate that he treats children the way he treats them i think it's very unacceptable um, I, but I, I truly don't, I, I've never been of the belief in education that you bully children or that you, um, you toughen them up. Um, I hate that method because the, I, I was not, I was a target of that by a lot of ch- teachers in my life and I, hmm. I couldn't, um, and I had many wonderful, wonderful teachers who were the exact opposite of that. So I, I, I hate that method. Um, but also that Snape from the get-go hated Harry without ever trying to see who he was as a person. You know, people can point to who who started it, and it was Snape. Snape, the in Sor- Sorcerer's Stone, Snape looks at Harry sitting in the Great Hall, and Snape, and Harry feels the hatred coming off of him. Um, and in his first class with him, Snape sets a trap for Harry um, to make him look like an idiot. And uh, that somebody could do that to an 11-year-old, that's... No, that's not okay. Um, yeah. As a future teacher, that yeah. anchors me. Un- un- unacceptable, unacceptable behavior. And that his, while his, I do, I do respect his actions. I think he was very brave to do the things that he did. But the fact that he did them for such selfish reasons, and as I think we really took apart in this chapter, he didn't understand Lily as a, as a person. He and maybe that is maybe that goes all the way back around to the beginning and answers my question of why Lily is portrayed as this saint-like figure because maybe while memories do show in Pensieve's like how true the truth you were right cat from the beginning that we are seeing these through Snape and maybe we are meant to understand Lily as Snape understood her by the way that she's written um purely as a saint-like figure who could do no wrong um, and was worthy of, to be possessed, which I don't agree with at all. You, that's not that's not a true relationship, not a healthy one anyway. So, listeners, we welcome your 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 vitriol against <laughs> all of that. Have at it. <laughs> Have at it. We want to hear you guys. We've heard you guys defending Snape actually this past week, and we we want to hear that um, because. That's what Alohomora is about. It's about not just our opinions. We want to hear what you, the listeners, have to say about this as well. Because for now, that is the end of Chapter 33, The Prince's Tale. Snape has told his tale. I would really love if you guys would send in a bunch of audio booms. Because I feel like um, it's more passionate to hear somebody really talk about something. So go over to alohomora.mogolnet.com and send in some audio booms about Snape. I feel like maybe we can do something special with those if we get enough. Just saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Of course, our podcast question of the week this week is obviously going to be out Snape. It's going to be a very Snapey question. (laughs) And we thought long and hard about this. And we did touch on this a little bit in the discussion. But we are very interested to hear what you have to say. So here it is, our podcast question of the week for The Prince's Tale. The single most cited moment of Snape's love for Lily is in his declaration that everything he does will always be for her. 
We see that the text states that, quote, his eyes were full of tears, end quote, and we assume that to be Dumbledore. Our discussion touched on this a bit, but we want to know what you think is the motivation behind this rush of emotion. How does this moment define or inform the individual storylines of Snape and or Dumbledore and the overall themes of the Potter novels? So you know what to do. Head over to alohamora.mogolnet.com. Leave your comments. Leave your questions. Hate mail <laughs> if you miss. You know, if, 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 if that's what you need to do, go for it. Or send us an audio boom. And, you know, your comment just might be read out on next week's episode. And we should clarify, listeners, that if you do feel that the, the tears are Snape's tears, you can feel free to argue that and go on a whole tangent about that, too, in the podcast question. Either way... We're still asking the question overall about kind of what does this moment mean for Harry Potter as a whole? Since you do have it all tattooed all over your ankle, you millennial you. <laughs> <laughs> but for in the meantime, we want to make sure and thank our guest, Christina. Christina, thank you so much for joining us on this very snapey show today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I was to the point where I almost thought it wasn't going to happen, but... Thankfully, it did. I enjoyed the time. Thank you. And she's she told us she she thought it was good as a listener, right? <laughs> <laughs> Putting me on the spot here. <laughs> we have one like. We will take it. We will take it. <laughs> yes. And if you want to be on the show and validate us, like Christina... Too bad, because we don't have any more room. All of our opinions. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, Hallows is full, but, um, uh, you know, if you did that fancy little Patreon thing, you might have seen some special videos about some plans for after the next month, because, you know, we have four chapters left or something like that. Oh, my that. God. So, keep sending in your clips. Wink, wink. Hint, nudge, hint. nudge. Um, yes. If you have just a simple set of headphones, Apple headphones or the like with a microphone, you are all set. Don't need anything fancy, but you do need to validate us. <laughs> yes, please. We, we like validation <laughs> over here at Alohomora, which you can find on Twitter at MN, Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore, on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Our Instagram is MN. Of course, our website, you know it, you love it, you visit it alohamora.mugglenet.com and I'm sure you all have ringtones by now but in case you don't you can download one for free over on the website and as we mentioned quite a few times in this episode audio boom it's free all you need is an internet connection and a microphone like on your Apple headset I swear to god we don't they don't pay us um, keep it under 60 seconds and you just might hear yourself on the next episode of Alohomora. unless it's just 60 seconds of you going uh, in reaction to all of our stuff. <laughs> then our editor Patrick will take that and make it into a kick-ass song. Yes, he, he will remix he all of your uh, Um Yeah, but don't do that. <laughs> but yes, but please don't. Um, but kind of secretly, I kind of want to hear that, but don't do it. <laughs> but please do head over to our Patreon page. As Allison had mentioned earlier, our post-Hallows plans were revealed on Patreon along with some other delightful treats that you can get by sponsoring us for as low as a dollar a month, whatever you can donate to keep Alohomora going. And as you might find out through Patreon, there are certain plans that may or may not be formed to keep us going. But for now, this episode has run its course, but I'm sure the Snape discussion will continue. Oh, no. Always. Oh, God. I'm Michael Harley. 
I'm Kat Miller. I'm Allison Sigurd. Thank you for listening to episode 184 of Alokamora. Expecto Patronum. Open the Dumbledore. That was a killer door open noise. Hello, I was in love with your mother, and that's why I'm a good person. Now you have, you be a good little boy and go to the forest and get yourself killed right now. Like, do, do, do not stop, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Oopsie poopsie. Always.